Hello and welcome again to the Room of Lives. This final part of the conversation is my take on the nature and rules of the cosmic game that I suspect life is. We start with the question of whether there really are other players in this game or is a single being simultaneously playing as all of them. Moreover, is the simulation itself ultimately separate from the player? Here we draw a connection with Maya, the Hindu idea that the world and its multiplicity are an illusion with which Brahma, pure awareness, deceives itself, enters as the world and its inhabitants, all with the ultimate purpose of regaining true self-knowledge and returning to oneness. I back this story up with some scary visions I had when I was younger. We expand on a Buddhist quote about our beliefs being more substantial than our experiences and discuss the Hindu principle of Advaita Vedanta that all separateness is an illusion. But if all players and the game are ultimately one, what would happen to the notion of free will? And does it square with our observations and experiments about free will and thought? We mention Shunyata, the Buddhist idea of the emptiness underlying the diverse worldly phenomena, and look anew at death in light of this cosmic game. I share my views on the purpose of the game being deliberately difficult, related to the dissolution of the separate identity, which is a source of both great fear and great liberation. I suggest how the teeming richness of life at all levels, not only in material, but also psychological laws, and the complex paradoxes of our choices and outcomes, suggests the entire world as a personal, interactive, deliberate manifestation of life, rather than a vast, inert, impersonal desert where the only source of sentience and intelligence is ourselves. How did ancient cultures such as India, completely unfamiliar with today's technologies of computer games, virtual reality, and simulations, come up with the simulation theory of the world? Could it be due to individuals briefly waking up from this cosmic illusion? And is that happening even today? Finally, we discuss how this game of life appears to be positive some, and that love may play a surprisingly fundamental role. If you enjoy visiting the Room of Lives, consider supporting me by donating dye or ether to abhranil.eth. That's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. How's it going? <laughs> Pretty good. Um, yeah, I didn't go to work today. <laughs> Sad stuff to do. But okay, so we are here. We're doing the second part of what we thought would be a one-part episode <laughs> to be finished in three hours. And when I when I said three hours, your eyebrows went up a little bit. Like three hours. Are you sure you're gonna need three hours? We needed three hours yesterday to do half. So here we are. We're gonna do the second part of. Um, whether or not the question is, is life a simulation? 
And in the first part, we kind of mostly talked about, or what I, what I mostly talked about was my gradual um, lifting or easing of certainty about what I think reality is, especially in the last couple of years of my life. And so in this part, we're going to talk a little bit about what, are there any new things that I believe? Has the model not simply eased, but but altered in some way? And if it has altered, um, what kinds of clues or information or experience has guided this alteration? So I'll be talking a little bit about that. I'll be talking about some personal experiences. And I will be talking about ideas, mostly from, mostly but not exclusively from Eastern um um, traditions that I have encountered that kind of have started making increasing sense. So we'll be talking about some of these ideas a little bit. Um, yeah, and then at the very end, uh, we will be talking a little bit about the nature of if this is a game that we find ourselves in, what is the nature of the game? Um, okay. Okay, let's start. So, um, so we kind of discussed yesterday about you know we have all of this very we have this uh, very solid scientific certainty about the nature of reality, which we noticed that it sometimes extends beyond uh, the bare proof, and that I increasingly increasingly think is a scientific dogma. It's a dogma of its own in science and um, so if we were to just sit and uh, just think clearly for a moment we will see that there really isn't any evidence available to us that can help us discriminate between whether or not this is a simulation and questions like does consciousness really uh, is is it really generated in the sense of generation like causal generation is it generated by this thing that we call the brain? Or is evidence of activity in the brain simply stuff within the simulation that's correlated with how I feel uh, in my body or in my emotions, etc. So stuff like that. Okay, so um, so, the, so scientifically the simulation theory does not really contradict uh, our experience of reality. Um, but uh, that does not suffice to create a complete model of a theory. It's just a speculative uh, hypothesis. Um, things that are still remaining to be investigated or answered, if it is a simulation, are very basic questions like, um, so there appear to be different players in the simulation. There's me, there's Benam, there are other people. Are these really other players? Um, playing this simulation like some sort of weird shared dream or are they all part of the backdrop of the dream uh, and do they even exist or not am I the only player um, uh, what is this simulation running on like what what is the physical nature of the simulation the virtual nature of the simulation is our life we are in the simulation but what is the nature of the simulation in whatever world it's running 
Um, and we can ask questions like, okay, what hardware is it running on? But that's a question that's so strongly loaded by the intuitions of this world that that's not, I mean something more general. Like if this is a simulation, looked at from the point of view in the world where the simulation is running, what kind of simulation is it? Um, um, is that is that embedded in a world that ultimately turns out to be a higher simulation? Is it an infinite regress, etc.? cetera? Um, who's the creator of the simulation? Or what is the purpose of the simulation? Um, so let's start with one of these questions. So the idea of solipsism is that, as far as I understand it, that there is no evidence or no way to know that any other consciousness besides yours uh, actually exists. So you, you never know if other people are real. Yeah, you never know if other people are real. And that's kind of part of what I'm trying to say here is, um, how do we know that there are other players in the simulation? And if there are no other players, it becomes a little easier to understand the simulation because um, current day humans have are, are already working towards or have partially designed simulations in which a single human player can enter. And although there appear to be other players in the game, um, they're not really other players. They're like simulations of other players. Um, but I think in the near future, we will be able to envision or even experience simulations in which um, multiple humans can enter at the same time. And the computer that's running the simulation will incorporate all of these users into a shared story and you will be able to interact with characters who represent other humans in the simulation. Um, another interesting uh, way that this could develop, and we'll see why it's particularly interesting to uh, our particular discussion uh, in, in the context of Maya and the Hindu traditions, is that you could imagine, uh, okay, so when a human enters a simulation, um, these days, the way they do it is through input-output devices. But brain-machine interface technologies are going to quickly improve in the next few years. Elon Musk founded a whole company called Neuralink, whose ultimate purpose is to deliver consumer-grade brain-machine interface products within the next decade for reasonable prices. So there's definitely a huge thrust towards this. And you can imagine that as simulations get better, they'll eventually upgrade themselves from input-output based interaction with the user to direct reading and writing from the brain. And then you'll be able to leverage many more sensory input-output streams, etc. cetera. Um, but one interesting th thing that you can do is if the a simulation is directly, or the computer algorithm is directly talking to the brain, then you could use different, uh, let's say motor nerves or diff different kinds of nerves of the brain to um, to write commands to different players in the simulation. So for example, as a human player, I could simultaneously be controlling three different players that are interacting amongst themselves in the game. Uh, in the same way that humans have already learned to control prosthetic limbs, etc. Um, so what happens in that case is that there's some sort of a reader that reads electrical signals from a certain set of neurons in the brain. And these are neurons that are usually kind of responsible for 
moving that arm in the first place. So the humans kind of intuitively know or like subconsciously know how to send appropriate signals to those electron uh, to those um, uh, neurons in order to make their arm move. Now they haven't used that part of the brain for a long time maybe because their arm got cut off but after this prosthetic limb is attached to them and the connection is made to these neurons the human can start issuing those commands again uh, by imagining that they're moving their arm uh, as they did before. Over a period of calibration the brain kind of um, synchronizes with the machine or the machine learns how to interpret uh, the commands and they can learn to uh, move their arm. You can take a different subset of the neurons of the brain of this patient and attach it to some something else, some other robotic prosthetic. So in the way that different parts of the brain can simultaneously, in the same way that I'm just using my hand, both my hands to gesture at the same time, the brain is capable of simultaneously uh, interacting with different parts of the world. So if you imagine these different parts of the world as being different characters in a simulation, the same person can enter a simulation of, let's say, a town full of people, uh, each of which has much lower intelligence than the human player, and simultaneously control them. Mm -hmm. um, so, so with that idea, then, you're, yeah. you're not um, supposing that like, for example, the human's brain to um, adapt to multiple novel outputs like prosthetic limbs is, is indefinite, but rather you could theoretically imagine something like orders of magnitude more complex than a human brain having been broken down into constituent parts like multiple people. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I don't imagine that the human brain's uh, capacity to simultaneously control and interact with various uh, external subparts is infinite. There's mm -hmm. like a finite limit to it. Um, but that's just a property of the human brain. Also, I don't think we really understand the limits of the human brain very well, especially in regions where it hasn't been formally tested before, like in areas of interacting with artificial external objects. Um, the human brain is just kind of famous for you make some prediction about it and then it turns out it's not that way. I mean, duh, it's because it's the same machine, once again, right? So we don't really know, but I mean, I'm willing to bet that its capacity is finite. Uh, but it, like you said, you can imagine like a more complicated brain entering a simulation like this, where at once it is all of the players, but different parts of that brain might be controlling the players and there might be some deliberate interaction being weaved out of the interaction of the players um, Although the original human player knows all of these moves already, but there's still something happening. There may be some source of uh, uncertainty, like the quantum uncertainty in the game, such that uh, it's not ultimately entirely predictable, even from the single player's point of view. But I just want to say that it's not inconceivable for us to imagine humans designing this kind of, you know, um, simulation where a single player can enter as uh, uh, multiple characters. Um, one question might be, how will the human player feel at that time? Like if there's simultaneously uh, two or three people talking in the game or interacting, which one of them will you feel like? And so that's the question of like sort of consciousness of the feeling of the self. And uh, would it be possible for a person to split themselves up into multiple characters like this? 
And we already have evidence from split brain patients. These are patients whose corpus callosum connecting the left and right halves have had to be cut in order to stem the spread of uh, epileptic seizures that they were having. And so these two parts of the brain initially used to be the part of, initially used to be parts of the same consciousness. But in the split brain patients, several experiments reveal that when it comes to certain aspects of personality or consciousness, the two halves effectively act as two different independent consciousnesses. So there's reason to believe that consciousness is a property that can be split and merged. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, we don't really know, but I mean, there's the, the horizon of possibilities is, is pretty wide here when it comes to splitting up a single human um, into multiple characters, let's say, um, in a simulation. Um, so I just wanted to kind of start with the plausibility of that scenario. Um, and then uh, next I want to kind of introduce the idea of the sort of the Hindu traditional idea of Maya. Um, and you will see what the similarities are and differences are between the idea of Maya and this idea of uh, um, simulation uh, founded or motivated by current day human technology. Um, so we'll be able to see the similarities and differences. Um, but before I do so, I want to relate one personal experience. When I used to be a, okay, how old was I? I guess high school, high school in India. Well, I, it doesn't really matter how old I was, but I remember I used to have several experiences that were like pretty intense. I don't want to go into them like right now because not all of them are relevant to this particular topic, although they are all kind of interconnected. But one of these ideas that, I, I mean, I it's kind of vague for me to remember, like where these thoughts, where these uh, just ideas that just kind of uh, arose in my mind, where these visions, I don't exactly remember very well. Um, but there seemed to be sort of maybe a voluntary component of thinking to it, but also largely an involuntary component of ideas and visions and thoughts just kind of arising uh, in my head. Um, and so one of these visions I used to have was about what is going to happen after I die. And I guess in my imagination or like whatever, I call it the mind's eye or whatever, the vision was that against a backdrop of just complete darkness, like outer space, but with no stars, um, I saw myself as being a stream of light. Um, and this stream of light is kind of rushing towards some sort of a source or an ocean. And I see other streams of light like me coming and merging. And the stream just gets bigger and bigger until it kind of converges into this spiraling center where it's just like this huge orb of light. Um, and that's just the vision that I had. Um, at other times, I remember thinking in my head of different people or me and another person, and all of these apparent differences in people as being sort of similar to how during Easter you take like all white eggs that all kind of look the same and you paint them different. And it felt like each life, we're just the same egg. And the eggs are all completely indistinguishable from each other. Um, in the sense, so that way I should use uh, some other 
analogy than eggs. Okay, so two eggs you can keep in two boxes and two people can eat them. So it's not, they're not really indistinguishable. They were laid at by different chickens or maybe the same chicken at different times. But imagine the case of two electrons. There is no real way in which two electrons can really be told apart. So in that sense, in that even more indistinguishable sense, I imagine humans as being like these eggs and every life, I had this idea of every life, like as if there are multiple lives, I don't really know. But I felt like, like at least during a life, the egg would be colored a certain color or some pattern, but then at death it would be washed off and the, you know, ultimately underneath we are all kind of the same. So this is related to the light stream kind of vision in the sense that I felt like death was a sort of involuntary merging with the one thing that we all already are and only temporarily uh, detach from that oneness uh, during life. That vision, when I did have it, was not necessarily a positive thing. I remember it kind of brought with it like anxieties related to death, etc. Um, it wasn't like it was a feeling of relief associated with the thought that I would be merging myself with. Uh, like a big, It felt like I didn't want to merge. I wanted to retain my individuality. And, um, um, but yeah, I mean, I used to be pretty anxious about death when I was younger. Okay. So, um, so this is just to motivate the fact that I used to have these ideas of my own. Also, the one thing that I should mention is that there was very little context from other people for me to be having these visions based on what other people said. I grew up in a fairly non-religious family everyone in my generation is atheist there were rarely any even half religious ceremonies or talk or sentiments in our house and definitely nothing having to do with these abstract ideas they don't form the basis of any mainstream indian religion by the way like this concept of unification after death or whatever so there was very little context in my life from which uh, i could have borrowed these so even now today, I'm not really, I, I mean, very honestly, I'm not sure where those ideas came from. And I felt like they weren't just like imaginations that I sat down and kind of made up. I felt there was this quality of being visited by these ideas. Um, and I know that with all of my scientific training and whatever, I, I mean, I don't have the tools at hand to explain this. The best explanation, but not a very good one, that would have to come up is oh these were just like whatever figments of weird imagination in our head and they have nothing to do with anything but i find that too much of a coincidence uh, especially because when i first when i kind of started thinking about the idea of the simulation and non-duality and i started talking to people and experiencing other people's ideas and finding you know ancient traditions in india that all kind of point towards the same story which I had already experienced in some way, like the uh, the description of uh, what are different selves and what happens after we die, etc. They're all kind of the same as what I'm starting to find out. So I find it too much of a coincidence. Um, anyway, I'll talk a little bit about it later. I'm like, well, why did I have those visions, whatever. But um, anyway, so back then, this idea was not a welcome one for me. But, I, but but since I started looking more recently into these ideas, I find sort of a reflection um, of the same ideas in, in many cases. 
and it's not like everyone who's writing or talking about it is, is depressed. Most of them seem to be pretty fucking happy <laughs> <laughs> about this uh, this interpretation of reality. Okay, so <clears throat> personal story over. Now let me just tell you a little bit about the idea of Maya. Okay, so um, Maya, I think, so I haven't read very carefully about this, but pretty much every random Indian person the, that you ask on the street, can you tell me about Maya? Once they get over the awkwardness of what's happening, they uh, most of them would be able to give you an answer. It's a very uh, pervasive um, idea, regardless of how religious you are. Um, Maya can be explained in multiple levels. Uh, I guess the most um, blunt description of it is Maya means that everything is an illusion. Uh, the context in which people usually use it is uh, like, oh, this guy, you're being so attached to your money and income and your next promotion. Remember, everything is Maya. And it's kind of meant as like a half joke, like uh, it's all, all an illusion. Um, but the core idea or set of ideas, I guess, is that, um, okay, so I have a few quotes here from that I stole from the Wikipedia page for Maya. Um, so in Vedic texts, so the Vedas are like a set of very old Indian um, sort of religious slash philosophical books, not pertaining to any particular God, but it's about like a way of life, a description of reality, um, stuff like that. Um, but also some like religion, metaphysics. So the Vedas and the Upanishads are kind of like two main sources of like old Indian wisdom. And the idea of Maya uh, pops up in both of them. So in Vedic texts, Maya is um, can be translated uh, to be um, a magic show, an illusion where things appear to be present but are not what they seem. Um, so there's a slight difference between the, the usage of the English word illusion and what Maya means. Um, it does kind of mean that it's illusory, but it doesn't mean that it's not really happening. I mean, it is happening and it is real, but it is not what it seems to be. Um, in the sense that if you immerse someone in a hyper real simulation where they're really feeling pain, whatever, they can still say, okay, this is real. It all feels as real as reality can possibly feel but I'm being duped into thinking that this is not a simulation, this is not a transient video game that I'm playing for just five minutes. So in that sense, it's real, but it is not what it seems. Um, it's it's uh, one kind of reality having transmuted itself into a different kind of reality so that the raw experience may be real, but your inferences about what uh, this represents mm -hmm. can be false. So... The idea of Maya doesn't necessarily mean that every day the experiences that you're going through are unreal. It just means that the way that you interpret them are not how they are. Um, so it kind of, I think it, one of the ideas is, is kind of like a magic show. Like everything is a magic show. Nothing is as real as you think. Um, okay, so a couple more uh, sort of representative quotes um, because I myself don't know much about the idea of Maya, I just took the quotes that kind of seem to encapsulate. Okay, Maya is born, changes, evolves, dies with time, 
from circumstances due to invisible principles of nature, state the Upanishads, which is the other set of books. Um, okay, and now we'll come to something that we haven't really talked about so much, a little bit. Atman Brahman is eternal, unchanging, in invisible principle, unaffected, absolute, and resplendent consciousness. We'll talk a little bit about Brahman uh, later, but in brief, it's this one creator of the simulation who is simultaneously present as all of the players, but not simply is he the creator and the player, he's also the simulation itself. So there is no separation between the simulation and the person playing. So that thing that's everything is called Brahman. Brahman in uh, Sanskrit and Hindi has multiple uh, translations. Uh, Brahmand means the universe or the egg of Brahman. Brahman generally means, I think it's a, it's a purely spiritual idea. So for a society that has moved away from those ideas, there is no modern day analog of what Brahman is supposed to mean, but it's supposed to mean the one or the one true or the one thing that's the universe, um, which in many Western cultures doesn't even make any sense. So, but I just kind of translated that. Okay. So the next quote is, then it is all mere maya with which the Brahman deceives himself or the Supreme Soul uh, deceives himself. Um, okay, so a couple more. And this is where we'll come to, we were talking about science a little bit in the first part. Okay, so this quote goes, maya declares Sarvasara, I guess this is some, uh, some like wise person in the story in the Upanishads. Um, Maya is anything that can be studied and subjected to proof and disproof. Anything with gunas. Gunas means qualities or aspects or properties mm -hmm. uh, that science usually kind of describes. In the human search for self-knowledge, Maya is that which obscures, confuses, and distracts an individual from the, um, from the path of seeking self-knowledge. Um, Okay, so a couple more quotes about, um, you know, okay. So this, this one goes, Complexes have no inner might, are empty in themselves, like an illusion which deludes the mind, like an empty fist with which a child is teased. So these are all descriptions of Maya. I, they are, I guess when it says complex phenomenon, phenomena it doesn't mean complicated it just means that it's not fundamental of its own mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that if you have a flock of birds swarming the motion of the swarm is a complex phenomenon um, but ultimately it is revealed to be nothing more uh, than than each individual bird over here they're talking about a complex phenomenon that it is ultimately empty uh, so a complex phenomena, yeah, they say have no inner mind or empty in themselves, like an illusion which deludes the mind. And I like it, how they say, like an empty fist with which a child is teased. And the reason I like it is that as humans, I have started to feel like we do spend a big chunk of our lives just being teased and chasing down this Maya. Um, complexes of various different complexity that are ultimately empty of themselves. You can start with, for example, the social structure of, okay, I need to make more money, I need to get a career, blah, blah. 
it's the, the the whole might and necessity and importance of that attitude lies on copies of that attitude in other people's minds so this is some sort of a complex it's very believable it makes the world go around very formidable but if you look at it closely it's empty there is no, in the sense that the U.S. issues dollar bills against gold, but gold itself has no value except th that which is shared by other people. So this whole huge economic system, which rests on the dollar, rests on something that's gold, and it ultimately rests on empty mm -hmm. beliefs. Um, so that's kind of one example. But it is a very, it, it, it still does not feel to be this empty fist that, that keeps teasing uh, children uh, everywhere uh, all right okay. so so all right so concepts that that you just introduced are maya and then also like the one consciousness if you're brahma there. brahma yeah and so these are these are sort of like mm -hmm. uh, not opposing ideas but but oh, very no. distinct yeah they're very distinct in that that there is a relationship between maya and brahma um the idea i think is that Brahma is the one who has created Maya and um, okay so by the way when I say the idea is it doesn't mean that there is one the book and then there is one the idea and every other idea is false and there's one correct so if you read the Indian Hindu texts it's often a lot of like collaboration between people all of whom thought a little differently from each other so we have many different books and then there are many different religions that came out of Hinduism even within Hinduism different people have different viewpoints so mine is just going to be my summation or accumulation of the ideas that I've got so far so the idea is that Brahma has created Maya and um, but Brahma has entered his own Maya there was no one else other than Brahma. Brahma himself or herself, whatever. That Brahma, uh, it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> Brahma doesn't have a dick or, or a pussy. <laughs> okay, okay, now that, that can be on my podcast now because I said it. Um, and Brahma has entered his own Maya and taken on the form of different people. This is where the idea of avatars come in in, in the Indian philosophy. Avatar is... Uh, temporary form of something that's ultimately not this so the Brahma has taken on different forms you can imagine them as like being crystallized bits of consciousness uh, in different people's bodies or whatever and they're all interacting amongst themselves and they're emerged in the circus of samsara which is everything that's happening particularly the human society and all of this is like a circus and uh, when people die or whatever they'll ultimately return to the soul of the Brahma um, and all of this is for nothing. There is no purpose. Um, the idea of purpose only exists within this game, but mm -hmm. not really outside. Um, this is not like, it's not like you're, you're consuming resources wastefully as Brahma. I mean, Brahma is consuming resources wastefully as he is creating the simulation. It might be that in his world, there is no resources. There is no waste. There is no purpose and everything is for nothing. Um, so that's the idea so Brahma has created Maya uh, the Maya is ultimately Brahman but not exactly the same there is kind of this purposeless game in which the different crystallized consciousnesses have to seek self-knowledge in order to find out their true nature and uh, 
it kind of spoils the plot a little bit because later on I was going to talk about okay what is the purpose of this game or whatever but what a lot of people seem to point towards is the purpose of the game is to um, is to rise above the game uh, is to understand the the nature of the game and to understand the nature of yourself and to understand the nature of the relationship between you and the game um, and in that way you kind of wake up as the Brahma um, so it's sort of like a voluntary self-deception it's like the player who deliberately suspends their identity and memory for a little bit in order to go into a game um, but then a game where the ultimate objective is to remember who you were prior to suspending? Yeah, it's almost inevitable that you will remember. So the objective is not something that's disconnected from waking up from the game. The ultimate objective is to wake up, but the path to it is very tortuous and, and has been deliberately laid by the Brahma to be not non-trivial. Mm -hmm. So you'll always be faced with moral and ethical questions. You'll always be tempted by all sorts of things like, I don't know, drugs, alcohol, women, and... Uh, in order to constantly distract you from the purpose. Um, um, and like the different players don't really mean anything. It's not like, oh, well, how is Benam going to do in the game? Because, you know, as will come later, I, maybe there's no free will. This is all, you know, just for entertainment anyways. Like Benam doesn't mean anything. It's just one crystallization. Um, if his brain were to be fused with mine, who would remain? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Whose score would we keep track of? Um, so, um, yeah. Okay, so, but, yeah, it is kind of interesting how they say that Maya is that which can be studied and subjected to proof and disproof, something yeah. that has qualities. So then the Brahma cannot be studied, is not subjected to proof and disproof, and it does not have any qualities. It's kind of interesting that these are also all different properties of what we call consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to study it. It has um, really not lent itself to proof or disproof. And it itself doesn't have any qualities because it's sort of the vessel for uh, the representation of all other objects of consciousness that have qualities. So in, in this... In this regards consciousness in your mind i've heard oh like pure awareness described yeah, that way yeah, yeah so would you say those two yeah i'm like? kind of I, that's what i mean uh -huh. uh, pure awareness um okay so yeah okay so here's and that's from the that was from the upanishads i don't know but this was just, these were just like quotes that i stole from the wikipedia page i kind of cherry-picked the sentences that kind of resonated with me um, but this one that I just said, the studied and subjected to proof and disproof, this is from, I think, either the Veda or the Upanishad. Okay. This is something that's being said by some wise person in a story in the Upanishad. Uh, you know, Buddhists also describe the soul or awareness as being this clear mirror on which everything else is reflected, but the mirror has really no properties of its own other than the property of being able to represent or reflect other things. Mm -hmm. And that is its only property, if you can call it a property. Uh, it's sort of, rather than being a property, that is the, that is the, it's the birth of properties of other things, mm -hmm. if you can call that a property in itself. Well, maybe. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so okay, so I really like this quote. The whole quote is kind of to do with the purpose of people in Buddhism. I particularly like the first part of the quote. So it goes like this: Understanding that, uh, understanding that what we experience is less substantial than we believe, is intended to serve the purpose of liberation from ignorance, fear, and clinging. And the attainment of enlightenment as a Buddha, completely dedicated to the welfare of all beings. This is more like a Buddhist angle to it. I think the more Hindu angle is less sentimental to the fate of uh, uh, humans. Maybe I mean the idea of Brahma, in and of itself, I think is supposed to be a very cold clinical idea. That is simply that which we are. In Buddhism, I think. There is slightly more emphasis on the welfare of all beings, and we'll see how this, how all of these ideas kind of come together. What what does the Brahman have anything to do with, you know, welfare of all beings or whatever? We'll, we'll come to it later. Uh, but the first part of the quote, which has really nothing to do with uh, Buddhism, um, I really like, and it goes: understanding that what we experience is less substantial than we believe, and this is what we had spent almost all the time of the first part of her conversation on and the reason we had to spend so much time dissecting and repeating and remembering that we uh, we experience our experience is less substantial than our beliefs the reason we had to do it is that it's kind of I feel like it's uh, embedded so deeply in our psyche that it takes repetition, it takes reflection, it takes time to slowly realize that that really is true, that our beliefs in their solidity and their certainty have far exceeded our raw experience. Um, and that that means something. Uh, if we keep living in a world of thoughts and ideas, it doesn't, but the real world is not the world of thoughts and ideas. There's always a layer of thoughts and ideas and we're perceiving everything through that lens now, as long as we keep perceiving things through that lens of thoughts and ideas, it's fine for us to go around having such solid certainty um, on our beliefs as opposed to raw experience. But once you start putting raw experience in front, um, then it really starts making a difference. You start noticing that when you put less certainty or substance in your beliefs, your interaction with the world really does start to change. The In what way? So, I can only describe it from my personal experience. Um, some superficial ways in which I've started to release my hold on ideas is who am I supposed to be in life? What am I supposed to do? What is my career supposed to be like? My identity and my career trajectory and my future used to be more rigid things that I felt like my experience had to align itself to. So mm -hmm. I was putting that as a priority for what I ought to do in the immediate future. It was being dictated by this nebulous idea. And now I've kind of, I realized that it was all a fiction, uh, a fiction that I was constantly feeding into by the facts of my life um, and that I am ultimately free to do what I want and the more I subscribe to the idea that I'm free the more I will 
end up doing things that will keep eroding the solidity of that idea. And so the solidity of the idea did not um, derive itself from anything fundamental other than how solid it was in my brain. Um, so that's kind of one way. The other thing is my own thoughts since I started meditating, I've noticed uh, they simply arise and pass away. They're transient. My mental states are very transient. So actions that I would normally have taken years back in an angry or anxious uh, or sad frame of mind, um, I don't always end up taking because just the simple act of waiting changes the whole climate inside my head and my intentions change. So that's another way in which kind of releasing my hold on the solidity or certainty of my thoughts and ideas has kind of been like a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. Um, so there, that. Um, and in some other ways, um, I feel like the notion of the ego or the self, <coughs> that in me has definitely eroded a lot. That's another like idea construct. Uh, who am I, you know? Um, and I used to be pretty obsessed with this idea of non-duality, like how do you dissolve the boundary between the self and the other? But in many ways, in many multiple different experiences or multiple different times, I have noticed that this boundary has dissolved. I don't make as much of it anymore as I used to. Um, um, so in just, yeah, I was just saying how. Well, what you asked me how, oh, how, how starting to realize that our beliefs are more substantial than our experience has made any difference. Mm -hmm. So that has made a difference. Um, the other thing that I do want to talk about a little bit, although this might sound a little weird, is that we kind of believe in the, ex in the existence of objects in the external world. Like, here's this table, there's this uh, a computer, here's my body, here's a microphone. Um, and the, the rigidity or solidity of the idea of external objects has also kind of started to, you know, kind of fray at the corners a little bit. For example, I started kind of asking myself, on what basis do we, uh, what, what is the concept of physical objects based on? Uh, the overwhelming experience is visual. So you look around and you see the table. But the, the visual experience itself is constantly blending, like as you move your eyes, the pixel that represented the carpet becomes the pixel that represents the 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 table so that the raw experience itself um it doesn't it does not is it's not it's always transit transient like the pixels that belong to one object is constantly becoming another object uh sensations or experience are constantly blending together so the idea of solid objects that kind of hold their own and only project themselves through transient and and mixing uh, phenomena is after all an inferred idea so mm -hmm. if you start to notice that then in many other ways so for example the molecules that constitute this table is forever not going to remain that table in the historical past and in the future they will constitute other objects the cells in my body have not al always been my own um so um i'm curious uh i feel like 
we as humans maybe have a a a knack for projecting that that notion of solidity yeah um but that it's not trained when we're born i i don't i don't know how much of like your early childhood you remember but like some 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 things that i tried really hard to to <clears throat> hold on to at various points yeah. was just like just like the feeling of total and utter confusion about how what it was that i was experiencing mm-hmm. seemed to not be what other people were experiencing whether it was like you know just just the idea that like there's this thinginess about this thing yeah. that is fundamental as opposed to just a projection yeah right like which which to me there was this like it was just this this chronic fatigue of being overwhelmed by like um a litany of 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 the categories of of these various things that to me were much more um nebulous in, yeah, in, yeah. in, in their in their definition yeah. and and constantly it seemed to be as if everyone was always operating with answers about exactly which category to put things in when when i'm like well we could do this one of like millions of ways right yeah. we could do it as like it's approximation of cylindricalness like and that's 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 how we first see the world or you know right yeah. like it's just like just a host of arbitrary yeah. things that you know you can argue or have have um there's a there's a uh, a score of dictated by pragmatism like you don't give things just like the stupidest yeah. definitions we call it a chair we call it a chair because it like we would we intend when to we apply say a chair we mean the special subclass of objects that serves an intended purpose right that you can philosophers have spent so much time with questions like these like why do you call that thing a chair would you call this a chair would you call mm. you know um would you call this a brick you know what do you mean by the inside of a brick when no one has seen the inside the <laughs> moment you make it uh, see the inside it is the outside blah 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 but yeah I'm, so i think it's partly trained by language and culture mm-hmm. the naming and categorization but part of it is more ingrained so when when you're a baby away before you have started talking uh, if i give you a toy you will kind of uh, you know um, heft it yeah you will like play with it a little bit until so basically what you're doing then is that you're forming so there's the visual representation of the object and no one needs to be trained to see the object you know that's very automatic you give um, a baby uh, what do you call it what are those things that you shake shaker a shaker and you immediately see the baby immediately sees the shaker there needs to be no level of training cultural or otherwise in order for the baby to see the shaker so but the shaker um is recognized to be some sort of an object you know because though the object recognition uh capacity is within the visual stream itself um but i think to some extent it works with so i'm, I'm coming to that so but the baby also picks up the shaker and kind of plays with it and has tactile input and sensations of this object but in the early days when the baby is playing with it and getting simultaneously the tactile sensation as well as the visual sensation their brain is learning something mm-hmm. their brain is learning to map those two sets of sensations from the two sensory streams together and it can do it much better if it maps it to the same abstract idea mm-hmm. in its head whose different properties now link to the different sensory stimuli. 
So this is done without the help of language or coaxing or people telling you. This is just the brain putting different sensory stimuli together. A large part of what babies do in their pre-language years is train these kinds of things. Learn implicitly about how heavy things are, what happens when you throw stuff in the world. Um, if you see something in front of you, how should you engage your muscles to reach out and grasp? Mm -hmm. And all of these, I think in some higher abstract center of the brain necessitates the formation of ever more sophisticated and complex models of objects outside mm -hmm. in the world. Uh, but you can imagine that if the experience of this baby were to be very different, if their experience were to be a lot more fluid and things were not really keeping their object-like shape and were not consistent in their inputs to you across the different sensory modalities, that the baby's ideas of objects or whatever might be very different. And then later on, then there's this whole thing where people keep refining your idea of objects, right? This is a car. No, this is a different car than that. No. Oh, no, baby, yesterday you said that's a horse, it's a doggy, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you just keep... A lot of these things you wouldn't even actually learn by yourself unless you were told by other people. Mm -hmm. For example, Eskimos have 11 words for white, for different shades of white. You know, not only would we not know the names of these different colors of white, if they pointed them out to us, a lot of us would shrug and say they're the same color. Mm -hmm. And this has to do with the fact that our real, raw uh, resolution of uh, sensation uh, is modified by our mental maps of them. Um, so if in a language there aren't words for certain sensations, chances are that people will not be able to discriminate among those different variants. Well, and it's not necessarily because like without the words we have no ability, it's, but without the words there's no, um, there are little, few opportunities to practice discrimination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the brain just allocates fewer resources to discriminating them because it has been has not been important. Mm -hmm. um, uh, slightly racist um, example. When I first came here, it was the first time that I saw so many Asian faces. For some reason, American faces are okay for us to distinguish. Maybe, well, let's not get into that. Partly it has to do with media. But mm -hmm. I hadn't seen so many Asian faces. And I remember, very honestly, like, telling myself, I'm not a racist person. I just find them very hard to tell apart. But this didn't, phenomenon didn't keep existing like after a couple years or so i could first very easily tell apart my friends from other asians that kind of looked like them and then i immediately then eventually i could start telling asian faces apart mm -hmm. um so why does that happen it's not like the brain is racist and like oh they're all the same it's because the brain doesn't bother allocating face detection and identification resources which are actually very you know large resources to a data set of faces that it has never be seen before. Mm -hmm. So, okay, anyway, so object recognition and categorization are kind of like super um, complex ideas and they are trained and developed at various different stages of development and learning. But um, yeah, I was kind of talking about how my uh, grip on the solidity of even external objects has become to, ha has started to sort of release. Um, in ways that, I, I mean, it's hard for me to kind of explain because it feels like two different alternate interpretations of the same sensory stimulus. Mm -hmm. So it just feels like a play of semantics. But to me, in some ways, in some experiences, it doesn't feel like semantics. For example, if I'm letting an anxious thought go, the intellectual understanding of how solid the anxious thought is makes a difference mm -hmm. in 
in your ultimate experiential um, whatever um, okay so pa, 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 pa. yeah okay so yeah so the Buddhists believe that this is intended to serve as uh, the purpose of liberation you can see some connections purpose of liberation from ignorance fear clinging and the attainment of enlightenment as a Buddha completely dedicated to the welfare of all beings so we'll talk a little bit about the welfare of all beings okay so one bullet point I hear was uh, I had here was the connection with non-duality and the non-duality I think I will do a podcast on non-duality separately so this is an idea that has a, um, that arose in multiple different contexts in different countries in different traditions um, different cultures uh, but one of the uh, older versions of those uh, uh, the idea was once again from India from a doctrine from not from I shouldn't say doctrine from a book called the Advaita Vedanta I don't think it's a whole book it's just a couple of paragraphs at the end of one of the Vedas and Advaita means not to and the central uh, statement of the thesis is that um, um, well one of the ways of saying it is that the Atma and the Brahman are not two meaning your soul and the Supreme Soul are not two it's the same but there is also another way of saying it which is that you and your experience are not different are not two they are the same so in other words the different players of the simulation are not separate from the creator but also the players are not separate from the game um, and n teachers of non-duality will often give talks about the illusory separation between the experiencer and the experience and science most scientifically minded people have a very well-defined mental division between themselves and their experiences but for example through some meditation techniques of looking closely at the contents of your consciousness um, it can be shown that this boundary between self and outside self um, is illusory for example if you sit and uh, close your eyes and you imagine the tingling sensation at the tip of your finger I mean it's going to be kind of hard for me to explain here but the tingling is because your finger is touching the air um, but if all you can feel is the tingling itself then where does that tingling where is where does the air end and your skin begin it's just tingling and so if you're if you really pay attention to simply the raw experience you'll see that nothing in the raw experience uh, tells you clearly that this is the boundary this is the boundary boundaries are always inferred and any sensation that you experience happens if I might put it this way at the boundary mm -hmm. always at the boundary between self and interaction with the world sometimes the world can be parts of your own body as well so for example if you want to say okay I want to touch my hand to my thigh then you kind of arbitrarily divide up the the boundary as being between your hand and your thigh and your hand is experiencing your thigh your mind kind of experiences your thigh touching your hand and your hand touching the thigh at the same time uh, it's just this weird but we still have this weird boundary you know or for example if, if I touch my hand 
on the top of the sofa cushion. I don't experience anything that the sofa cushion experiences. I only experience my hand experiencing the sofa cushion. But if you look closely, these are all inferred thoughts. The only thing that I experience is a sensation of touch. And anything, any other idea that is brought in that, oh, the touch happens inside the hand, the hand is inside me, the sofa is outside me, is based on those abstract notions of object and object division between my body and categorization that has to do with um, um, sort of cross-validating the tactile sensory information with other kinds of information. Like visually, I see my hand going up and touching the sofa. And the rest of the day, the sofa remains very far from my consciousness. And I don't get to feel anything, so it can't be part of my body, um, etc. Um, but the idea of objects and boundaries between them we don't really notice exists in the world of thoughts and concepts, not in the world of raw sensation. Um, in the world of raw sensation, there is only raw sensation. What you decide to label it as or categorize it under is kind of subjective, really. Um, okay, so I wanted to talk about the connection of the simulation theory with non-duality. So With non-duality? With non-duality. So I told you what the idea of non-duality was, that there is no difference. There, not, not to and I already kind of drew the connections right. because I was talking about this is today we we're talking about the nature of the simulation and I said I kind of said a few things that are pointing to how the different players are only apparently different but ultimately all the same mm -hmm. and the game is the same as the player so these are ideas that are shared with non-duality although they might use different language uh, to explain so the simulation theory or the theory of Maya or this whole idea kind of subsumes, um, among other ideas, the idea of non-duality. And non-duality was an idea that I was kind of exclusively obsessed with uh, ever since I read about it in Waking Up by Sam Harris. Um, so now I kind of feel like I can understand non-duality as part... I mean, I used to think of non-duality as the, as the ultimate end-all and be-all, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow of spiritual and philosophical and scientific understanding. But now I see it as part of a bigger picture, which is kind of interesting. Um, okay, so now here I want to talk a little bit about free will. If the player, if all of the players are ultimately the same, and if the player is the same as the world, in the sense that what appears to be the world or what appears to be the player or, or what appears to be consciousness or experience, are all simultaneously one and the same thing being created out of this, you know, out of nothingness at the same time, so that the game and the player are simultaneously imagining each other into being. It's just it's all one cocktail, really. Um, if that is true, if the player and game do not have separate origins and are only coming in contact, then the idea of or the notion of the sensation of free will of a player going through this game would have to be an illusion. Mm -hmm. If something like the Brahma created the game out of a part of him, his own consciousness and entered it as an apparently separate being, then it would mean that there is no real external secondary source of free will. Free will is kind of like what is free will? Free will requires two entities, let's call them player and game, 
where one does not anticipate the other. In this case, the game does not anticipate the other. Or let's say the rules of the game do not predicate what the player would do. Mm -hmm. So the idea of determinism, for example, is that the rules of the game of this universe are such that they also determine what we are about to do. So no surprises anywhere. Okay. Free will is that no, there will be surprises. So there are there's a lack of information of one party about the other. The way that it feels when you walk into a room and say hi to a person, you don't know what the next, what the person is going to do because you don't know that person because there are limits of information. Um, but if the same entity is both the player and the game, then there can be no honest free will. Um, there can be the illusion of free will, maybe, in the same way that there are illusions of everything else. In our talk so far, we have seen how, you know, I mean, there are so many things that, you know, are appearing to be uh, what they're not, like, for example, the idea of objects, etc. We may not want to call them illusions, but they're like derived concepts. Um, if we look, but and, and they're not backed up by the reality of raw sensation. Once again, when it comes to free will, maybe if we look really closely at our raw sensation, we'll start finding things out like, hey, I wasn't the author of that thought. It just came into my head. And what it did was I had this thought, it gave rise to another thought and ultimately to a demand. And I moved my hand to buy that cup of ice cream. And what I'm mistakenly doing is looking at this whole chain of when this first thought appeared to my final purchase as being evidence of free will. Mm -hmm. Going from the first thought to the action. But that is not free will. Free will is saying I came up with the first thought in that I had some hand in not having come up with that. So there could be an illusion of free will. Or we could be saying free will about something that it, it actually is not. And in fact, I think in around 1962, uh, a psychologist or neuroscientist called Benjamin Libet, neuroscientist, conducted an experiment which is kind of like now widely cited both inside and outside science as um, having um, exhibited evidence against free will. So there was this um, person who was hooked up to a machine that was looking at uh, blood flow or the rate of blood flow in the brain. And uh, I guess they had to make a decision at some point of whether or not to push a switch. And the experimenters were looking at their blood flow and using the blood flow, they could predict what the subject would do before the subject themselves knew that they were about to do it. Um, so ever since then, the whole field of uh, the question of free will has kind of become an exciting one. Um, other people, I guess, have done experiments. And so and the, the idea in that experiment is that if, if there is a, there's evidence of some sort of predictive force that exists temporally prior to the person yeah. being aware or yeah. thinking that they're thinking yeah. of making a decision then that would that would be evidence against the idea that they were even making a decision and they thought yeah. they were thinking if, they were if, making a decision. if imagine the first moment at which you become aware that you want to press the button mm -hmm. if your button pressing had been decided prior to that moment then no matter who is in the driver's seat, you are not. Mm -hmm. You are downstream of when the decision was already made. Okay, that's interesting. So, so it could be that 
there is free will, but we. Um, it wouldn't be our will. Right, or or at least it wouldn't be something that we experience in real time. You could say maybe it's like we like are capable only of like remembering our decision making, but we aren't yeah. necessarily. But that is completely at odds with the general notion of free will that has existed in theology or mm-hmm. uh, in just the general understanding of people. That sort of free will is going to be like a useless free will to most people. Like, oh, there is some sort of free will. It takes place in my stomach without my permission. And then I'm just <laughs> told about it a couple seconds down the line. That's Then if you keep using the word free will for it, then it's kind of dishonest. There's nothing free about that. Okay, well, but but like, let's, so let's say, let's say, you know, um, the mechanisms of free will, free will are, are there are these like you know, notions of choice and deliberation and, and, and like that your thoughts go through a certain process. And yeah. and so say say the process itself that dictates those thoughts occurs before, but nonetheless are are reflected with fidelity in the process itself. So it's like it's like if I if I see the shadow of free will, if my awareness is the shadow of free will, even though I'm never the, the free will itself, yeah. if I'm a faithful rendering of it, does that make it any less real? No, it may not be less real, but I think the only reason that people care about free will so much, and there's so much talk about it in um, religious texts, is people want to feel like they're in control of their lives to mm-hmm. some extent. And that is the relevance of free will. In some uh, technical way, you could still say, okay, th- this is a decision still arising within the mind-body mechanism, uh, and there is some degree of... Um, non-determinism in that or whatever you might find some sort of hole but the very fact that our our awareness is downstream of the decision making process makes most of the interesting features or desirable features of that free will just you know it's, it's not really free is there, is there free in the sense that you're not free to choose mm-hmm. is is this notion of downstream free will is it um airtight against like notions of recursion so like say say like now that i i see in like like is it is it always just like a feed that i i only get to observe come out at a discrete time and whatever you know um slice of 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 awareness i have that i can then can i never like just by merit of being aware of the thoughts that i've already decided prior to being aware of them can i not then alter the flow of, of thoughts downstream that's kind of speculative maybe i don't know you might decide to do that but it would have been decided already right right that's, that's, that's what I mean. it's like, like is it so does it yeah yeah so you might do whatever you want like you, you could suddenly say okay now i'm gonna do this and it's gonna stop but you know that decision was made for you mm-hmm. so, so it's like you're, you're just observing yourself yeah. get trapped in a pre uh determined like um, yeah. Uh, frenzy of of yeah, yeah. self-referential yeah. mania. Yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I kind of wanted to talk about how um, the idea, I guess, that neuroscientists are starting to find out that free will is an illusion mm-hmm. would make uh, would make sense in the simulation. Uh, hypothesis if the nature of the simulation is such that there is no real difference it's all really the same system just different parts interacting amongst themselves and um, since there is no source of information or knowledge or design or intelligence other than the brahman 
everything is already known and everything is already designed and there is nothing that is unknown there is nothing that is unanticipated nothing that is unpredicted uh, because everything is the same but there could be the illusion of limits to knowledge uh, for example it seems to us very clearly that we don't know anything about don't know everything about the universe mm. uh, we conjecture that there's so much of the universe outside of what we are experiencing as our raw sensations every moment and all of those parts of the universe are unknown to us all oh, these galaxies whatever mm. but once again if you notice those are all inferences the only thing that's real is our raw experience and everything that we say we don't know anything about are just thoughts inside our head um, okay so um, so okay so there's that the idea of the limit of information or the limit of knowledge uh, I could say I don't know anything about what's going on inside your mind but maybe nothing is going on. <laughs> I didn't mean to like take a jab. I was just, it just came out that way. I'm sorry. Man. You are a rubber duck. I'm sorry. No, I'm not offended. Yeah, okay. I was uh, like, I wasn't really thinking anything, was I? Hmm. But it looks like other players in this game have free will. They do these things that we don't anticipate mm -hmm. and they act in ways that we find our own selves acting. So well, like, oh, it's probably... So but here's something interesting, right? Is yeah. it's like you can see, like, as you reduce sort of like the, the cognitive complexity of various species, um, they become, to us, apparently more and more predictable. Yeah. Right? Like, like as, as if they're, they're um, available behaviors are just it's, it's a smaller and smaller set, right? Yeah. To the point where after a while we're like, that's not intelligent. Um, yeah. So... I think it's so so to me it's it's kind of interesting that we see this gradient readily apparent across species mm. and it and it seems as if you're hypothesizing that that there isn't a significant gradient amongst human individuals right like say 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 we are um all like of the same essence and and have just been been given um different <coughs> well i'm not making such a strong distinction between humans and other animals in this argument i'm just saying that humans as with other animals we sometimes we, we feel like they have free will like if you have mm -hmm. a dog it does seem like they have a certain reduced capacity of free will doesn't it seem that way i mean it does mm -hmm. seem like sometimes the dog just kind of decided to just lie down right there on the carpet instead of like walking a couple more feet although sometimes it does the other thing but if you notice the a dog uh, you will realize that you ascribe less free will to a dog than you do to a human mm -hmm. And it could simply be um, the limits of our predictability of other animate creatures. For humans, it's harder for us to predict what they will be doing. And so we, I think to some extent, we conflate our limits of the prediction of um, a system 
as ascribing some sort of intelligence or complexity or free will mm-hmm. um, to that system. Well, and also I think I think you you need um, you need some notion of free will um, to generally to convince people to enforce measures of accountability. Like like you yeah. like for humans, we we care about the free will because yeah. when when people do things we don't want them to do. Yeah. We have to be able to hold them responsible in a way that we don't really care about doing for dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's uh, true. Actually, Sam Harris made an interesting uh, comment. Um, uh, he was talking about free will and ethics at some conference, and he said that uh, most of our legal system here in America, like with many other countries, is kind of predicated on the assumption of free will, and it goes by the legal system mostly operates through... Uh, penalty and through punishment and uh, okay I'm going to teach you a lesson because you obviously decided to make that choice mm-hmm. and uh, that was wrong of you and therefore we should punish you and you're saying that that doesn't really measure up to what scientists are finding out they're finding out that there is no free will of course that doesn't mean that from now on we just let all criminals go scot-free just imagine that after the end of this talk you guys are in the parking lot in the back and suddenly someone shouts, oh, there's a bear, you know. You will take preventative action um, against the bear uh, potentially killing someone and you don't have to worry about whether or not the bear has any free will in order to mitigate any damage that the bear might uh, bring. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, I'm, I, and this is my addition, and I'm pretty sure that when the bear is, let's say, trying to attack you any actions that you might take to mitigate the effects of that not only does it i mean in the moment whatever you be doing you won't sit down and first decide whether or not the bear has free will also you will not sit down and decide whether or not you have free will before deciding to uh, things just happen whether or not there is free will we are always kind of submerged helplessly in this current of life where your body does things that it does and maybe someday we will have figured out that there was no free will in it ever it doesn't mean that things never happen or you know uh, good things never happen or bad things never happen um so anyway so that was about free will um but i guess within the simulation or maya theories the the idea of free will would also be a maya it's sort of it's not what it seems to be it's not it's not real. However, the illusion does make the game a lot more engaging. Mm-hmm. If you were a sub submersion in a game where you knew that you were not really controlling the player, things were just happening, it would be like a movie. Mm-hmm. But the whole point of a game is to have some notion um, of, of free will, or at least some illusion of it. Um, okay, so I want to talk about uh, free will. Okay, so then sort of... Um, Okay, so so then all of this apparent phenomena, this whole complicated storyline of so many different people um, living in a world with galaxies and whatever, and like a planet with so many different complex life forms interacting in ever more complicated ways, so many different problems that we have, the economy, you know, the environment, we've got a clown on the throne and all sorts of problems in our... Uh, social life, cultural life, political, economic life, but also in our personal lives, 
we're having to battle with boredom with moral and ethical questions we are not happy we are too happy we are thin we are fat what do we do i'm bored you know so all of this apparent separation of different people we see ourselves as separate from other people separate from the game we see all these myriad forms of actions and objects um, and we have this apparent free will and purpose of life that we are constantly hunting out even if it be spiritual purpose so they are all ultimately empty if it is all the same underneath and this idea is called shunyata in buddhism shunya means zero and shunyata just means emptiness um, so in buddhism i can't really draw a bridge between what we're talking about and buddhism but i suspect i'm it's probably going to turn out to be right that the idea of shunyata in buddhism essentially refers to the uh, emptiness that is ultimately underneath everything mm-hmm. um, but i don't think that the takeaway from that realization is supposed to be pessimistic it's just supposed to be neutral it's just a realization that everything is ultimately empty but and my personal take on why you shouldn't be depressed about it is that every happy thing every meaningful thing every beautiful thing that has ever happened to you in life has happened through that emptiness mm-hmm. so what higher purpose value beauty uh did you suddenly did your vision suddenly slip from if there was an idea of some higher value beauty profundity knowledge purpose then it was fabricated by you in your mind you know using but you used as evidence beauty purpose knowledge that has managed to emerge from this emptiness you know so chill (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i kind of feel similarly about you know richard dawkins wrote this book called the selfish gene in which he kind of broke down oh we are just this gene machines and this is how we evolved and he got a letter from a young student she saying that uh, she took that book so seriously that she was flung into the pits of despair after <laughs> she read the book she she found all her <laughs> uh motivation for joy and beauty and happiness in life stripped away because she found no purpose in being life just became this gloomy thing I was like that's um it's not like she was being irrational before to think that life was beautiful and purposeful and meaningful and worth living i feel that she is being irrational now to decide that because i've found that it's driven by genes and selection that all of that has now disappeared mm-hmm. then then the time has come for you to realize that there were some irrationalities in the construct of whatever you thought to be real beauty and real purpose if it were, if it were contingent upon a particular interpretation of things that just are yeah 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 mm-hmm. exactly so um anyway so yeah so it's called shunyata and buddhism so so what's the point what's the point of all of these myriad forms and um i think there is no point and there doesn't always have to be a point humans for example a good example and also like young animals when we create and engage in our own games for no purpose you know we spend a lot of money i think humans spend a lot of money to play games uh of many different forms we willfully enter it although we know that it's empty you know um and also with money career life um even when we are not playing so called easily noticeable games <coughs> we're still always playing this 
ultimately empty game. And should we ever forget that this is ultimately empty, I think death is the final reminder. No matter where you get in life, how much money and power you have, how real you think your advances are, how, uh, how real you think the score on the corner of the screen is, ultimately it's going to be reset to zero, <laughs> I think. Um, so in that sense, I feel like death actually serves a very important purpose in this game is to be the final resort of uh, the end point of the game and therefore that which keeps the game a game. If human beings can ever find out the key to never dying, then every stake will become infinite times. Mm -hmm. Can you you imagine like everything will become so much more... um, valuable not necessarily in a positive sense well it's it, it changes it so changes it becomes so solid well it skews yeah. it skews it entirely changes your 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 assessment of risk right it, like yeah, it changes yeah. what is um what used to always be a question of when right yeah. like like you know you have a finite number of years so yeah do you do you <laughs> die jumping out of an airplane or sitting on a couch right like it's it's a win question but then yeah. Why would you get in a fucking airplane if it's an if question? You yeah. know, it's like it's like yeah, 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 whoa, what, what like you're 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 yeah um yeah no I, I I totally get that I think I mean there's yeah yeah there's every reason for that to be a disaster to like regardless of of its deeper implications just like the way it would skew human behavior yeah for certain people to have access to yeah. potential like a mortal yeah. um uh lifestyle that would be yeah, yeah. so with this idea we've been talking about death just as with other objects and concepts that we discussed before now under this new model or understanding or interpretation death kind of loses its solidity as well death is only the end of this particular form of the game it is the cessation of this particular character doing whatever it is doing in this particular body um, and it is sort of a return to the indivisible soul or the knowing or the awakening and so ultimately it is not to be feared and whatever does fear death is the transient illusory temporary form or self that has crystallized for a limited period of time mm-hmm. and so if you if you observe your fear that will point you to that which is not ultimately endless that which is not ultimately in uh, permanent that which is uh, not ultimately true or intransient uh, so if you if you if you keep kind of tracing back the source of your fear you will find the transient self um so when i was telling you that i used to have these visions they used to all, always be coupled, kind of coupled with a gripping paralyzing fear of death and something in my head there was this voice saying keep following it keep keep like just jump headlong into this fear and i always held back um and so that was kind of like a very depressive period of my life actually um and sometimes i wonder especially these days, 
I wonder what would have happened if I had jumped headlong. There are accounts of other people, like for example, Eckhart Tolle. He had sort of a very negative experience when he was an undergrad and he was gripped by a fear of like failure and, and ending or death. And there was a voice that just came into his head. This is according to his own accounts uh, that said, resist nothing. And mm. so he didn't resist this thing that was sucking him in and he completely survived. And so other people have described this as well as surviving your own death. For example, Tagore, whose writings I was reading, he has talked about this multiple times. Um, he has said things like, you know, if you can die before you die, that is the ultimate living, um, which is sort of a suspension of all that is the limited idea of the limited self that I am. If you can kill it, then what you get as reward is life. Um, and maybe physically, the same is true when we will physically die. That all of this fear that's associated with ending um, may turn out to be just uh, a real unification with what life is and what we are. Anyway, so just ideas. Um, Okay, so um, okay, so uh, yeah, so death is the final reminder that it's it's all ultimately empty. Um, now we want to talk a little bit about what is the objective of this game while we are actually playing it. Um, we kind of hinted at one objective before, which is self knowledge, and self knowledge is also knowledge of the world the knowledge that there is no separation, that we are this creator, etc. At this point, we are sitting here talking about it intellectually using words. This is not the same as that self-knowledge. It, it can help and um, sort of, uh, it can work together with knowledge at a deeper level. Um, but I've kind of noticed that sitting and talking about it and reading about it, an intellectual understanding of what we are is not the same thing as really knowing what we are. Um, but the intellect has its own uses. Uh, I think it can um, lead you to the right people and the right ideas, but then it, it is still up to a different part of you to imbibe that uh, in, in other ways. And not all of the other ways are intellectual. Only one part um, is intellectual. So one universal objective that I find very few people kind of disagreeing with among the ones that I've read or the ideas that I've read seems to be the desire to dissolve the separate identity. That's like one objective of the game. Or to recognize that there is no separate identity and whatever we hold on to, sort of, uh, it, uh, it always keep recons keeps reconstituting the separate identity and it's kind of like a feedback process. And then the separate identity wants to keep believing in things that uh, reaffirms the notion of the separate identity. Um, so the one universal objective seems to be the dissolution of that, and some people use drugs for it. And one of my first introductions to the dissolution of the ego was through MDMA. Uh, but that was more like an empathogenic thing. I felt like I was still a separate person. I want to talk about this in more detail in the non-duality podcast. Um, but then I remember taking shrooms, and on shrooms, I'm sure I don't remember, but on shrooms, I wrote down that this is a non-dual experience, as in, I can see that there is a character called me in this room, but I see that from the same point of view as I see all of the other characters. Um, 
So there are many different ways in which you can approach uh, the notion of dissolving um, the barrier between the self and the world. And I think somewhat deliberately, it is meant to be a task that is frightening. Otherwise, it would be just too easy. The rewards are really great. I can guarantee you that if you make the, um, the right incremental moves towards this, depending on where you are in your life and what kind of person you are, working with your strengths and weaknesses, every incremental progress gives you uh, a lot of uh, rewards. And in my case, the rewards have, well, let's talk a little bit about, more about this later. But in summary, I think the rewards for me have been a greatly decreased sense of baseline anxiety, a much richer engagement, appreciation, and respect for life, and a sort of, I feel like in many ways, life is um, flowing through me much more freely than it used to years back. Um, and I've sort of, I realized that there used to be this fictional idea of this is not good enough. I need to find something better. And I find that, um, now I find life to be ultimately, you know, it's the most intense thing <laughs> that you can ever experience. Um, and so there have been so there have been changes and it's you were kind of rewarded so no one can come and tell you that this is what the objective of the game is because I've proved it this way because if you take the right steps the right rewards are very um, intensely subjective uh, so only you can experience so um, and there's no real way to prove it to someone else that I figure out what life is um, the only thing that you can then do is sort of reflect some of that back onto them so that they see for themselves that, okay, something's happened to this guy. Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> this, this sounds fun. Let's do more of this, you know? Um, okay. So that seems to be one universal um, objective. Um, okay, yeah. So it seems to be the desire to dissolve the separate identity and to merge. Um, now, like I said, I think not coincidentally, um, there seems to be a lot of fear associated. If you start from the very first step, okay, let's take something very simple. Um, I'll take something from my own experience. I went to a dance club and I was kind of like a rigid, kind of stiff person. I didn't want to dance. And so there's self-consciousness involved. Nothing remotely close to death, you know, but it still is a negative sentiment of rigidity and solidity that is associated with the notion of the self. And as you start taking small steps towards them, like, okay, let me embarrass myself a little tiny bit tonight. You'll see that the next night, you're not feeling embarrassed anymore. You're feeling happy. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. So what lay on the other side of this flimsy barrier of embarrassment and self-consciousness was happiness. You know, So you start noticing and in ways that you can't describe or prove or argue with other people, you start taking little steps in the directions that make sense only to you. And uh, the sense-making is made through the rewards that you get, that you don't have to justify or defend in front of anyone else. Um, so that seems to be one um, objective. So there's fear, and the ultimate fear is the fear of death. Um, yeah. 
but if this were to be the if this were the only ultimate objective of the game the game wouldn't have been devised in the first place because in this game there is a willful first there's a separation of the different players um there's a separation between the world and the self that has to be unlearned at, at some point so um so if if the merging and union was to be the ultimate objective of the creator there wouldn't be any fabricated separation in the first place um, one thing could be and this is like highly speculative is that this being a separate person but in the company of other people um, gives you a sense of what what it feels like to be separate and the loneliness that's caused from being separate and it gives you little bits and pieces of the happiness and joy that comes from union in many ways, like helping someone out, spending time with them. Um, there can be physical union, there can be mental union of all sorts. And I think maybe in some ways it's supposed to be instructive. It's supposed to remind us or it's supposed to tell us something. And here I remember what Pratim said. He said, oh, the one consciousness came into being all into this void it was just lonely had nothing to do and therefore it kind of divided itself up into multiple different consciousnesses that will ultimately merge again and maybe the whole thing is an exercise in um, uh, creating and repeatedly creating and dissolving uh, separation because the one conscious but I because the one consciousness felt lonely in the beginning but how can there even be such a thing as a feeling of loneliness if there is just this one thing? I mean, it, it doesn't really make mm -hmm. any sense. So I have no idea. But, I mean, there doesn't have to be any purpose to this repeated separation and, and merging. It doesn't have to be any purpose. Maybe I mean, this it, is... It could, it could even be that, like, this is the... That is, in and of itself, like, a, uh, a fundamental attribute of... of the thing running the simulation right of yeah. right like, like that's just like yeah, the way feet. we have like yeah. two feet and yeah, two hands yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. like it decomposes and reassembles yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it could be that um but maybe that's not even fundamental maybe this game is just one among many other possible games that could be played mm -hmm. um and this just happens to be the nature of this game that we are um temporarily uh, submerged in okay um so yeah okay so somewhat connected to this so now i've kind of given you how my ideas about reality has changed um sort of along the lines of this i wrote a blog post recently called the only reality in which i kind of describe that um, i am now less certain in the same way that i've kind of relaxed my certainty about other things i'm kind of less certain about this narrative about this universe that has existed for billions of years and I just came into it like 29 years ago and I will live for a certain period of time and the universe will keep living so there's this objective notion of the universe of which I'm only a tiny 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 fraction and there's all of this other stuff going on that doesn't give a shit about me and it's just going on all on its own and I'm just this insignificant part that will have some sort of limited influence, um, cause and effect influence on uh, on the universe uh, for a limited period of time, and then it will just keep going on like it's like some sort of train that I hopped on board for a little bit and then I hop off and the train just keeps going, but I die. Um, 
this is the basic, the, the, the most widely shared notion of, of what life is about. And my solidity of this belief has started to kind of dissolve, if for no other reason, um, uh, in favor of the idea that this is a, this is a strongly personal universe. I mean, you can call this idea the same as solipsism. It's like mm -hmm. everything is for me. Nothing exists beyond me. doesn't mean that I'm always like the center of everything. When I say I here, I mean the sum total of my experience, which includes things, things that I see, other people that I interact with, or apparent other people that I interact with. So this is not an egoistic assertion that I'm like the most important thing in the universe, but the universe is identical to me and there's nothing beyond. Mm -hmm. um, so the history of the universe is my history. And it came into being the day that I was born. And the end of the universe is going to be my end, however it is. And the universe will cease to exist if I do happen to die. Um, so that's one notion of how, what I mean when I say that um, um, that the universe or the way that I regard the universe has become a lot more personal. Mm -hmm. um, this has not been simultaneous with me becoming like more selfish. It has actually been simultaneous with me becoming more at one with the universe. Mm -hmm. um, um, okay, but in a slightly more weird way, uh, and this is something that I hinted at at the very beginning of this conversation, and now I realize that I should have only mentioned it now. I told you how... Uh, we scientists kind of look around at the world as if it's this, not really dead, but this mechanical thing that's kind of uh, just doing its own thing. And the only source of sentience or understanding or intelligence is in people like us trying to figure out the laws that govern this machine. Um, my feelings, I shouldn't say my thoughts, I should say my feelings of relating to the universe has changed from that uh, vantage point. Now I feel like all of this evidence that I'm getting that, you know, life is not easy, it's not easy to be happy, things are kind of tricky, the whole world, especially when it comes to the interaction between the mind and the world, between values and intentions, it's always riddled with paradoxes. That which is most fearful can also be the most liberating. All of these sort of, to me, are now starting to appear as signatures of some sort of superior intelligence and not just happenstance. If you remember back to the human creator, scientist, or engineer trying different iterations of creating a rich world, um, the richness that we see in, in, in life, if you just open your eyes and pay attention and you're, you're receptive, I feel I don't think it is any accident. Every minute is filled with boundless intensity, richness, moral, ethical dilemmas, all sorts of questions with no answers. And it's like teeming with it if you, if you pay attention. Um, and if you are not paying attention, if you are bored or depressed or kind of lost, that's part of it. That's all part of what I'm talking about. Uh, um, and that's part of the challenge that has arisen. Um, so, I mean, don't, you can't use that as evidence that this is not interest. It's, it's part of what is supposed to be interesting. Interesting doesn't mean that you will lie in the corner happy and eating ice cream until you die. That's, that's not. Um, so the fact that I find interestingness everywhere now, only because I've started kind of opening my eyes, um, it feels like 
now I won't be as surprised if I find a superior intelligence behind what feels like teeming sentience everywhere. So when I say teeming sentience, I once again mean it has connections to how we were talking about categorizing objects. Like you touch this floor, you're like, oh, that's dead. It doesn't make any difference that it's dead. It's appearing to you as life. You touch it, you feel it. You look at it, you see it. You know, mm. it, it performs a certain function. The, 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 the intellectual idea that this thing is dead, most things are dead, whatever, that doesn't change anything about what I'm saying here. The sentience that I'm seeing is very immediate, very profound right here, and it is in the experience of things. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there are any things outside of my experience is like this false notion anyway, so I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about pure experience. Whether you define it as me experiencing things or the world, you know, it's all the same thing. And this same thing is just life. There can't be anything livelier than this. This is life. So... And I know that I, Neil, did not design this. <laughs> so maybe I've forgotten that I designed it and I entered. But in this limited existence, in my limited memory, in this game world, I don't remember designing this. And I think I would be less surprised if someday I realized that there was a, a, a designer, um, not in the same sense as a person designing a thing but a person like making their own self appear as different apparently design interesting forms or creating a being with such hardware that or such a perception of the universe that they would find this interesting like here i create this object and i create the subject and I decide that the subject will be such and the object will be such that the subject will find the object interesting. And all of this for no purpose because I was bored. <laughs> you know, if they are in a position to be able to do that, why not? <laughs> yeah. So I started seeing kind of sentience in, in places. In a very uh, exaggerated form, I'll give you an example of how this happened. I was on LSD and I was kind of Everything that I'm talking about now was kind of extra amplified then when I was in LSD in Mexico City. At some point, I was kind of thinking about the sentience of everything. And at the same time, I kind of needed to charge my phone. I was in the um, lobby of the hostel, and there's always like 20 people gathered there just like talking about something. Oh, hey, I did this today, and I blah, blah. And people just kind of lounging around. And it's just the whole place is a mess. It's also super fun. It's like you get... You get to meet so many really active, fun, happy, fucking attractive people, <laughs> young people at that hostel. I'm like, I could just live in this hostel forever, <laughs> you know? Uh, so anyway, so I was there and we were supposed to go out. Like I was supposed to go out with these guys that I met at the hostel um, in an hour or so, like downtown. It's always party time in Mexico, by the way. It doesn't matter. Even if it's Monday evening, the clubs are popping. Okay. <laughs> So we're, we're planning to go out and I realized, oh shit, I'm on LSD. My intellectual faculty is not at its best. There are things that I need to do. For example, I need to charge my phone. I need to go up to my room, change into something else that more clubs will let me in, you know. Um, I was like, okay. Now you see, here's a little lesson for you, Neil. The intellectual part is important. Okay, so how do we do this? Like, okay, first I need to charge my phone. I'm really in no state to like use my usual faculties of reasoning to find where I put my charger or whatever. I'm running out of time. 
So all I did, I remember just getting up and saying, um, I need to charge my phone. And the moment I said, the first thing I see is a power socket, like the power outlet right next to me. And then someone just volunteered. Someone said, um, oh, uh, you need a charger. And it comes out from under their ass. Like, <laughs> and this is all in the same, like, same second where I first got up with this intention. So oh, it was just like li- lying right here. And I take it and I plug it in. And in a couple of seconds from when I first had that idea, and I thought this must be an insurmountable problem now, my phone was charging. <laughs> and then I remembered the Matrix and the Deja Vu, about how we just assume that the universe just has this fixed course for the future and it doesn't respond in any way to what you want or whatever. I mean, this ultimate creator has all the power <laughs> in the world to have simply shifted the trajectory of the universe. <laughs> and then someone might say, no, 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 they would still have to go back and explain where the charger came from. But maybe they do it in ways where like, you can't keep track. Now, if you want to start now figuring out the history, the creator will be like, oh, okay, now I have to like make up some history. And they will be like tampering evidence on the fly. You know, to to give you answers of where the charger came from. You can't beat this shit. Okay, so and I was like, did that thing just like appear out of thin air? Because that's what it felt like. Like, okay, well, I'm not believing anything, but I won't also disbelieve it. <laughs> so anyway, my charging is being done. Okay, uh, but I think if you ask for nasty things, it doesn't happen. I don't know. I'm not sure. We'll have to find out. Okay. Maybe if you ask for nasty things, it will still happen. It's just another way of like making you confused. Like you thought you could read my mind. Oh, you're whatever. Anyway. Um. So yeah. Okay. So theory. Okay. So now that I, I've kind of given you this like voodoo world that I believe in, it's going to be easier for you to digest this next thing. <laughs> <laughs> so. Given the way that my own personal experiences have been evolving, I grew up in India when I was a kid. I had these visions and they kind of went away as I, I kind of like, you know, I, I kind of swept them under the rug. I'm like, no, I'm going to be a scientist. There's no place in science for stuff like this. And I did the science thing for a while and I came to the uh, U.S. I've been in Austin. Things have been really awesome. I've learned a lot. I've grown a lot as a person. I've experienced so many things and I did drugs and I'm kind of coming back to spirituality in multiple ways. Uh, you know, apparently, coincidentally, people have figured out a lot of new kinds of technology that make me ask the same questions or make it more um, more believable that this simulation model of the world could be true. Humans have started making their own simulations. You know, we have shows on TV like uh, Westworld and stuff. And it is all happening particularly in my slice of the timeline of the universe. Mm-hmm. There could have been so many possible times. If I were to believe the real history of the universe, there could be so many possible times I would have been born and I wouldn't even have the language to talk about what I'm talking about. I wouldn't have other examples. I wouldn't have a person listening to me about the simulation theory. Things are being handed to me on a silver platter if this were to be the objective mm-hmm. of the universe. So in some ways I feel, okay, all of this like supposed independence of the history of the universe may at some point turn out to be false and this whole thing is supposed to be my game and the objective is for me to uh, discern the spell of Maya and I'm getting the right input and the right stories and whatever. Maybe no one else ever existed or maybe I, I have no idea. 
but all I'm saying is that once again, my error bars about what I believe in have become much bigger as far as you know the so-called independent universe is concerned, and I'm just a brief visitor. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. So what I wrote down was that given the way my experiences are developing and coincidental uh, breakthroughs in the um, in in the development of technology, like the invention of VR, etc., that allowed us to start this conversation. It could all be kind of intentional towards nudging me towards the dispelling of the illusion. Um, if I, and I said, if not outright solipsistic, right? If not an outright solipsistic view that you don't even exist and this is all for the purpose of me. Um, but I'm not really sure about that. I mean. There's no reason for me to suppose that multiple apparent personalities can't be playing this game. But there's really ultimately no way to know. Um, how does science forget every day that there's so many fundamental things we just can't <laughs> figure out? But anyway. Um, okay, so the next question is, if it really is true that the universe had this history for most of which humans were much less civilized than we are now, definitely we are not making simulations of the quality that we are making now. So we were not familiar in our technological, economic, uh, cultural worlds with the idea of simulations. Uh, how is it that such ancient traditions hypothesized such a sophisticated idea, like, like the ancient Indian traditions, this was like thousands of years BC, they wrote about something that is essentially that the world is some sort of a simulation. A creator created the simulation out of parts of themselves and they entered it, became multiple characters, but then you will wake up. They didn't use modern terms like simulation or whatever, but they talked about a very similar idea. Mm -hmm. So how is it that they talked about something like this? What, what prompted them to come up with um, ideas like Maya? Um, and I think it might be that it doesn't require the invention of simulation in order for you to start questioning if you are in one. One thing that could make you start questioning is if at brief little moments here and there, partially or completely, I wake you from the simulation in various different ways. If you're not fully immersed in the simulation the whole time, then Sometimes you might remember like waking up a little bit, whatever that means. And I'm like, hey, I think I kind of got a glimpse of what reality is really like. Um, so for example, um, the kind of, the way that I feel when I'm on LSD. Uh, in some ways I've kind of started to repackage or reinterpret that as sort of being closer to truth. Maybe previous, uh, Traditions did not have access to LSD, but they had access to other uh, drugs. And for whatever reason in this world, if you take certain chemical compounds, you get closer to truth. I don't really know. Maybe it has to do with kind of shaking about the normally rigid way that your brain works. Kind of showing you, hey, this, this is not the only way. And that necessarily is closer to the truth than just believing one thing. Um, or maybe you don't even need drugs. There could be other ways to lift the veil. As I say, the like different fasting, illusions. meditation. Fasting, meditation. There's also this thing. 
so fasting and meditation are what would be called the path of the will in Hinduism. And then there is the path of surrender, which is the path of love and sacrifice, in which you, you're not like, oh, I need to get to enlightenment, but you simply give yourself up in many different ways. So for example, you spend your entire life in service. Um, you try to get as close to true unconditional love as possible. And I think I, I have reason to suspect that no matter how little we may know about fasting or meditation or this particular um, hypnotic, uh, psychedelic, whatever, or that particular ritual or this way of doing meditation, we all kind of intuitively know what it means to love. Not love a particular person, but to immerse ourselves in love. Um, I think we kind of intuitively know. Um, so I think that key or that path is immediately available to everyone. And I'll tell you a little story here. There was this, there's this girl called, a woman called Lisa Kearns who lives in the UK and she is a teacher of non-duality. And she, she asserts, she claims that not permanently, but her, her brain has shifted into this new mode where the notion of the self is kind of dissolved. Uh, this is not always the state of her mind, but it is the case most of the time. And so she goes around talking about, you know, uh, how she sees, um, I mean, she won't say this is how I see reality. She will just say that this is the nature of reality and these are the illusions, etc. And she sometimes has this YouTube videos where she's live on YouTube and you can Skype in using her Skype handle and ask any question and she will answer them live on the YouTube thing and I was just doing some work and I was subscribed to her channel and I suddenly get this email saying hey she's live on YouTube so I go on to see what is going on I'm like oh you can ask questions so I skyped in and I asked her a question um, big fan big fan <laughs> so it was like a nice moment for me because I had like been watching her videos a lot for a long time uh, and I really liked uh, her videos so she actually read uh, my question. She was a little dyslexic and I put like long words in the question and she was like, what, what, what is this word? I was like, oh shit, okay. So I asked her, what in your, what do you think causes the shift from this apparent duality of I'm a person and everything else is separate to the non-duality? Um, and she said, she doesn't know said it just happens in some people and it doesn't happen in other people in the people for whom it happens sometimes it happens permanently sometimes it doesn't it has something to do she said it has something to do with the body mind mechanism and i don't really know and if someone could have the answer to that question then it would be a million dollar question because a lot of people are looking for this but i don't think anyone knows at the moment what causes this shift um, and the second question, oh, and then she said, I said, okay, so but what, what can I do to have this shift, to experience this shift? And she said, the only thing that I can tell you to do is to follow uh, absolute unconditional love. Uh, I was like, the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a cheesy, what does, that's never going to work. We're talking about a neurological shift inside your mind. What does it mean, follow absolute unconditional love? 
what the fuck does that mean? You know, and I didn't know what the fuck exactly it meant, but some part of me knew a little bit of what the fuck it meant. And that little part of me, I think, has been growing stronger and stronger. Um, and at some point, months later, I actually sent her another message on Skype. I said, I now know what you meant. Because in my own experience, I have realized that following absolute unconditional love is really, I mean, those moments are at least simultaneous with moments of the self disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can happen without drugs. It can happen without meditation. And so this is the path of surrender. Um, so there's the path of the will and there's the path of the surrender. And so there are many uh, devices, I think, accessible to a society which doesn't have things like today's VR or simulation technology to start the conversation with. This conversation, when we when we use simulation the idea of simulations or technology, it begins at a very intellectual level. Um, But the conversation doesn't have to begin on an intellectual level if the society does not primarily live their lives on an intellectual level. Mm -hmm. Um, So once again, it's a bit of a coincidence that I'm an intellectual person, I live an intellectual life, and in my intellectual times, there has been an intellectual or technological phenomenon as sort of that kind of points somewhat coincidentally at what the nature of reality might be um anyway i'm seeing clues and footprints everywhere Uh, in a couple weeks i'll go crazy (laughs) (laughs) but anyway um so yes okay so i want to say okay how did ancient traditions come up with the simulation theory sometimes the illusion can be lifted okay so here i want to talk a little bit about a little video clip of a different non-duality teacher whose experience was different than Lisa Kearns. His shift was not um, abrupt like that. Uh, he, I think he grew up in some suburb of the UK and he said that he had a couple of experiences or visions or whatever when he was a child and he was just on his bicycle or playing with his little soccer ball. He felt somehow raised beyond just that local context and seeing as if from a bird's eye view not only himself, but everything around him. And in that world, in in that moment, he was kind of like, at least, he was kind of the whole local world and not just him. And within that world, he could see himself like playing with this soccer ball. And it just became one of many different characters. Um, So this may have been just this weird illusion that he had or just this weird trip that he had, but something made him kind of go and seek out more information about what he had just experienced. So he went to a local library and he actually found the Bhagavad Gita, which is like, you know, one of the, and I think he found one of the Vedas actually. And he eventually came up on the Advaita Vedanta, which is the text about the non-separation between the self and the world. And he eventually kept following it. I don't know the rest of his story, but now he is also a non-duality teacher. So you can imagine that that little experience that he had for a few minutes of becoming one with just his whole surroundings and seeing his supposed self as just being one character among many could be a temporary lifting of the grip of the simulation or the illusion or maya that we are in. And the reasons that it happens or whether it's real, I mean, I don't really know. Um, So, yeah, okay. So... 
experiences and insights like these could be the ones that fueled um, old traditions to write down theses mm -hmm. like this. Um, and also, I guess it helped that there was not such a rigidly laid down um, uh, perspective, like a scientific perspective on how to view the world. Like people weren't constantly, no, no, that's not scientific. There, so you can't talk about this, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. In today's world, uh, you have to kind of uh, struggle against that in the beginning before you can really start talking about these experiences. And most times it will be shut down anyway. Um, which at this point, or at any point, our podcast listeners have been free to do. <laughs> or apparently free to do. <laughs> um, okay. Also, have you heard of this thing, this TED Talk called My Stroke of Insight? Hmm. I don't think so. There's a neuroscientist who underwent um, a stroke that resulted from a bleeding um, inside her brain. And I think it kind of temporarily shut down the language, the speech center. I've heard about this, but I haven't watched yeah. the TED Talk. And she gave this TED Talk about how in those moments where she was like really trying to call 911 or she couldn't talk, she couldn't uh, recognize um, objects, all very useful things. But in those moments, she felt like she was at one with the universe and there was complete and utter bliss. Um, so in the moments that the 911, like they were coming for her, she was just enjoying this shower and she was like, wow, this <laughs> is the best thing that has ever happened to me. Um, so there are multiple ways in which this supposed illusion can be lifted. Um, I think I'll talk a little bit more about the connection between language and the notion of the separate self and why it may not be a coincidence that the bleeding was near her language center um, um, but that will be in like the different podcast uh, episode that I do about non-duality um, anyway so okay over here I kind of write wrote down once again like is this uh, lifting of the illusion did this lifting of the illusion happen because of the anomalous bleeding in the brain or is it correlated with this um, observed bleeding in the brain as another means to distract you mm -hmm. for you to say for you to i mean she's a neuroscientist so now a lot of other people take her experience very seriously but they may let be led down the wrong rabbit hole of oh this is something that is just particular way that the brain settles into this mode when there's a bleeding next to the language center and it really has nothing to do and should have no bearing on your spiritual life or what how you regard the universe blah blah so I think it's never supposed to be very easy for us humans. No matter how many times this happens, the lifting of the veil, I don't think it's meant for us humans to be easy to uh, to end the game. What At I wonder... Least, I mean, your experiences can't very easily become someone else's experience. Well, and I wonder even what to what extent your own experiences ought to propagate forward. Like if you have your own, you know moments where you feel like the veil has been lifted yeah um how like um how tied are you to that can you can you like yeah then go on to live your left the rest of your life like um in total denial of that or, or yeah, like, yeah. like i don't think there is any dictum i don't think that you're so one of the 
fundamental ideas of like the big religions is the idea of heaven and hell and that if you fuck up you go to hell mm-hmm. like if you if this is supposed to be the objective of the game and you live your entire life as this really separate egoistic individual just amassing money and power and abusing people and saying fuck you to love all the time that therefore you will have to burn in hell i don't think there's any such thing i think there is no question of being forgiven or whatever it's just this game arising out of nothing and it would be no fun if everyone always did the right thing so i mean it's it's kind of deliberate the pitfalls are deliberate and if ultimately everyone is the same thing which is the same thing as a creator this was all intended all along mm-hmm. you know so um what you do or not do as a result of these experiences is you know it's it's what you do um but depending on what you do or further experiences are going to be different that i can guarantee you so there seems to be some kind of a thinly veiled a system of reward and punishment associated but um yeah i don't know so if you ask me i feel like what i want to do is continue to lift this veil of separation because i have seen in my own life that effort being rewarded with uh happiness and joy unconditional joy and so i'm like i'm just going to keep doing this um but if that has not been someone else's experience then they're helplessly bound to their own destiny of doing something different mm-hmm. yeah so um yeah okay so pa 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 yeah okay so we okay so my last bullet point was about you know if this is a game of some sort then let's talk a little bit about what kind of game it is but we have already talked about several features this podcast has mostly been about the nature of the simulation that i think we are in and what kind of game it is but a couple other points that i want to talk about is okay so we did say that it's not easy to win within codes this game it's not even easy to know the objective of what the game of life is about it's not easy to know what to do it's not easy at all to be happy human kind every year they find something out that well this is going to make us happy forever i don't think on average despite leaps and bounds in technological innovation we are on average any happier than the cave person was mm-hmm. and i don't think this is it's not meant to be easy and also i don't think happiness is one of, is the objective of the game although it can be correlated it can be one of the objectives but if you try to obtain happiness through a shortcut says that you're not paying attention to the other objectives of the game then you'll notice that you don't get, get happiness either mm-hmm. for example if you want to get happiness without wanting to make other people happy if you want to get happiness without sharing love it's not easy if you want to get happiness selfishly it always eludes you mm-hmm. and i think it's kind of written in the not in the natural laws of the game but the psychological laws of the game and science today is not concerned about writing down the psychological ways laws of how the mind interacts people practicing meditation can write down some phenomenological laws for you and one of them will be is that you know happiness is not easy to get and when you really crave happiness on the other side of that is aversion and like it's just this thing you are just caught on a treadmill mm-hmm. so that's one i think somewhat designed principle of the game that it's not supposed to be easy um you know no easy answer to moral and ethical questions which is why hold feels exists um but even in your own life you can't always inherit the right answer from things that you've read there's a very particular personal choice in every moment and even after you make the the choice in a lot of cases you'll not be certain that you made the right choice i think 
it's because this is not a simple game um, um, based on simple right and wrong choices. Um, also, I used to think earlier at the beginning of my like newfound spiritual quest that spiritual answers ought to be easy within quotes. That if I'm not finding an easy answer that I immediately like and I go with, I'm like, yeah, this is the right answer, then it's not a good answer or like I'm doing something wrong. I'm getting spirituality wrong. I'm doing something wrong. But in some ways lately, especially since I started kind of thinking of life as this as the game that is deliberately challenging, I've kind of become relaxed about the fact that decisions or choices in my life are hard. Um, and I'm like, it wasn't up to me. I didn't decide to make this choice hard. I'm just kind of find myself in a cocktail of um, incidents and happenings and conditions in which every step seems to be hard. Well, so be it. This is the nature of the game. Okay. So I've kind of tried, started to relax my notion that things ought to be simple. But kind of funnily, that relaxation itself has made things kind of simple because I'm not so strongly tied to what is going to happen if I get this thing fucking wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, that idea has kind of started to recede in my head. That there's, you know, like the one consciousness told Pratim, just do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> not really, but whatever. Okay. So, yeah, so, so I followed it up with, saying that the relief of, you know, this whole big problem, every step is like, oh, whoa, this game is so hard to play, god damn it. But the relief lies in the fact that if you stop worrying about the right thing to do in this game, because such a thing only exists when fabricated by your mind, um, then the game is immediately engaging at every step. When you're, look when you're not looking for that score in the corner, then the game is, you know, what you get in return for giving up your quest for a score is the game. Uh, and the game is immediately engaging. Every moment, then it becomes its own purposeless reward, whether that moment goes positively or negatively. Um, and I think this has connections with how the Buddhists say that, you know, I mean, don't, don't go for the craving or aversion, just let things be as they are. Um, um, okay, so at the very end, I kind of drawing on all of these, um, there are like roughly two kinds of games in economy. For example, there's a zero-sum game where if someone wins, the other person loses. And then there's a non-zero-sum game where everyone in the end, maybe some people lose, but the overall winning is non-zero. And I think if life is a game, to me, I can very strongly start to see that it's a non-zero-sum game. And in that lies whatever meaning I find in this apparently chaotic, purposeless phenomenon, is that there is a source of something and that source, that ultimately non-zero-sum source, whatever it is producing, if you'll notice carefully, if there is any non-zero-sum anywhere, then it is love. It is some form of love. So the economy, for example, right now it's boosting and everyone's getting something. So imagine it's non-zero-sum game, but we're not calculating the sum across everything. For example, we are not taking into account the impact on the environment, on the planet and whatever. So if you take uh, something that involves a certain number of entities and we see was the, what was the total sum across all of them. I think the sum is equal to love and everything else is not love. And for me, in many ways, that is the purpose of the game now for me. Um, I actually recently changed my WhatsApp status to say I'm into non-zero sum games. <laughs> uh, but... For me now, it's kind of like an orienting principle is right now, today, 
or during this course or during this interaction with this person or in this career decision or in the next few months or in this particular gathering of friends, um, what is the source or what is a good source of non-zeroness in the sum? This is a game. So let's not forget about the game part. Let's have fun. But can I contribute to the non-zero sum of this game here? And that ultimately for me like makes the game a lot better. Mm. And if you notice, it's non-zero sum. So it makes the game better for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and at no cost to anyone. So ultimately, I think, so this true unconditional love that Lisa Kearns told me about is something that does not play by the rules of any zero-sum game. It ultimately is kind of boundless and forever giving, and uh, it's so, sort of also the other word for, so non-duality people say that when the duality or the separation ceases, um, you can call what remains, the one thing that remains by many names, you can call it God or truth or beauty or Brahman or whatever, but you can also call it absolute unconditional love. And I didn't have any idea what they meant. At the time, I was thinking of it starting from the point of view of dry neuroscience, mm -hmm. <clears throat> like the model of the self and, you know, um, how it might be an illusion and things that might be achieved when you... I was like, what does this have to do with absolute unconditional love? But now all the pieces are kind of starting to click together, not in intellectual ways that I can necessarily explain to someone, but in ways that I can feel... Uh, that sound true and make sense. Um, so you can go about your life pretending like it's a zero-sum game and life will give you back evidence after evidence that it is a zero-sum game. Or you can go about life as if it's a non-zero-sum game and every step will be filled with non-zero-sum rewards. Uh, that will. So, I mean, it's, it's a pretty interesting <laughs> game. It can be what you want it to be. But then do you really end up wanting it to be anything? Because free will is an illusion. Who knows? It's ultimately fun. I'm enjoying it. Even if I'm on the passengers, I have no idea. Whatever. That's the very confused conclusion <laughs> of what um, yeah, of what I had to say. Oh, okay, one other thing. I made a little note here to say something specific about the shrooms trip that I had. And I remember writing down during the shrooms trip that this is non-dual. But what I wrote following that was also important. I said, this is non-dual, but it does not matter. Love is the only thing that matters. And I spoke to a guy yesterday, actually, in the bike trip, who said that he feels the same way on shrooms. And when I'm on shrooms, I, I can't remember what kind of person I am on shrooms. But... I do remember my actions, things that I did. Every 15 minutes or so, I would pop out of nowhere. Here in this very room where I did shrooms with a couple of friends, I would like pop out of nowhere and say things like, did I remind you guys that love is all that matters? <laughs> you know. So uh, it's kind of funny that that first shrooms trip was where love for me got in the chain of cause, effect, and importance initially I had the scientific notion of the world where at the root of everything is what the fundamental particles are doing. So fundamental physics, and then it gives rise to uh, chemistry, gives rise to biology, and to a subset of biological beings that have the necessary hardware to run like complicated programs like, you know, our psychology, and then a subset of the psychology is love. So it's at the tail fucking end of the causative chain. There's no reason to go looking at it if you're looking 
to find the core of what the universe is about. Mm -hmm. But on that shrooms trip, I had this very strong sensation that love appeared to me to be at the very source as opposed to at the very end mm -hmm. of things. It appeared to me to be a guiding or generating principle. And I remember that wasn't an intellectual deduction. It was just this feeling that I was unquestionably in. You know, oh, love seems to be like the most important thing. And everything else needs to be understood as being derived from love. All the way down to fucking the atoms, maybe. I don't know. Um, so I mention it now because at the very end, I was just saying that, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a game and you have no fucking way of figuring out what it's all about. And there's all this confusion. But what kind of stabilizes me in this storm of ideas of what everything is about in this chaos and uncertainty is just focus on the non-zero sum and that that's love um so yeah the ideas kind of are clicking together concluding thoughts mm. do i have any concluding thoughts you can tell me about i know it's about like 6 14 and they're probably about to call for dinner but you can tell me about any experiences or thoughts in your own personal life that know. have any bearing or any connection with whatever we have talked about Ooh. in these two episodes that you haven't mentioned yet. Um, hmm. Well, I definitely feel like I've had... prolonged periods of time in my life where it felt like by and large I was I was um like so so when I when I like you know stopped playing violin um uh that was like a pretty deeply integrated facet of my identity <coughs> right like that was just as long as I'd known that was the thing everyone who knew me um knew me relative to right like mm -hmm. that was like the first thing that they would that they would um latch on to so in many ways it was it was it was something i not only associated with myself but i associated with like the entire world's projection of who i was mm. um and so so there were yeah i, I think in the months following that There were just so what you were describing about um, the world appearing rich um, and intense and alive. Um, that was that was very very true. In the uh, in the months following what? That I'd stopped playing violin. Stopped that, I, that I like had dropped out of school and that I was. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I moved into an apartment with no Wi-Fi, mm -hmm. where I lived by myself, and so I, I was like, yeah, very much like. I guess attempting to wake myself up sort of in a sense yeah. in, 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 in a sense that like it was like okay well you know I, I'd had this just um, heavy <laughs> like you know drape mm. um, in front of my eyes of of, uh, of a narrative of stories of, of all these things about what life was supposed to look like for me mm. um, that I was trying to get rid of yeah. um, and, and so in the absence of those things it wasn't that like it wasn't scary it was it was like I, I wasn't like 
gung-ho about it every day i was like ah god but but Mm -hmm. on the other side of that usually was was this intense appreciation yeah um for just the most ostensibly banal things you know like i i would spend like 45 minutes you know just like chopping vegetables really slowly you know you know just like yeah and i was like you know i would i would i wouldn't spice my foods very much because like these flavors are so intense and it's like nice you know and it's like your attention was also in multiple things now instead of just being Mm -hmm. funneled right well yeah one thing well it was yeah my my i was no longer preoccupied yeah um with with this sort of like um fabricated notion but instead trying to to be more just an observer of, of of what what it was like yeah to to just be existing at a pretty basic level mm. um and that was more than adequate it was it was again like it was very vibrant it was very um like joyful it was cool you know yeah. like like and, and i was like wow we don't like i i don't know what, what the fuck was i doing like yeah yeah you like, told yourself that this is the one thing that is going to make you supremely and absolutely happy and it's like way far down the road and yeah. i just gotta sweat and bleed and do all the other yeah, stuff before yeah. i get there and then i was like oh like just just i was just swimming through more than i could ever want yeah. and being totally ignorant of it um yeah. just just by merit of how i was i was framing the world um my and my place in it um i don't know i did i did i think i approached it with like a fair amount of discipline probably relative to the normal person just because that Mm. was that was still a habit of mine (laughs) at the time yeah yeah. (laughs) um i think I mean, there's there's a place for discipline. Mm-hmm. I think everything has a place if you know how to use it in the right context, given your intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and that's why, like, you know, it's it's so interesting. I, I at that point in time in my life, I was also very interested in cult cultivating some sort of sense or notion of spirituality right of, of connection with this this thing that how we're old in. were you at this time 20 okay that's yeah. when you stopped playing mm-hmm. okay yeah so this is like four over 40 years ago mm-hmm. um feels like forever ago i don't know um <laughs> it's a good thing i think maybe yeah. yeah um and and so so i was Yeah, I guess I was I was trying to be. Well, okay, few things. Um, I felt like violin provided a nice analogy because it was like this, like, um, not particularly difficult to conceive of thing to obtain a high proficiency at, mm. and yet, um, you know, you can see someone else do it, but but to replicate it yourself mm. requires years and years of training, mm. um, a very conscientious deliberate training you know not not just sort of like half-assing it you like you you, like there are there's a a, um in the realm of all things you could be doing with a violin under your neck there's a very small subset of ones that will be effective (coughs) i see right and so so it with that (coughs) i took that as an axiomatic assumption about most most things Hmm. um and said okay what then 
what can then I can I generalize from that and, and say might also be true then for for cultivating a, a sense of um, abiding happiness and contentment in my own life mm. right like there's probably like a small subset of all the possible things that I could be doing in my life that actually do bring me I, I guess I was thinking of it in, in sort of like maybe non-zero sum but along a temporal scale like what what can I do now mm. that is not like you know awful but will also benefit me in the future mm. so it's just like those things that are that are good for me now and will be good for me tomorrow and will be good for me 10 years from now mm-hmm. if it like satisfies those things then like that like those are those are like the things worth cultivating um but uh, yeah so i was i was kind of reluctant to put language on things before i needed it you know try 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 as much as possible to to wait and observe and and just try and try and rekindle a sense of what my experiences were personally as Mm -hmm. opposed to immediately trying to generalize them to some sort of communicable label Mm -hmm. um that i think is often the trend um, or the tendency when 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 we're trying to learn learn new things but i think can can especially if if the realm of interest is is that of our own experiences that can just be kind of that maybe is something more interesting more interesting to the person trying to teach it but mm-hmm. not necessarily to the person trying to cultivate um an experiential practice themselves mm-hmm. um and i i did started doing a lot of meditation at the time and some yoga as well so i don't know that i it's interesting i i guess it's like it's hard to say whether I was really successful in cultivating a sense of like non-duality or just had done well in um, cultivating an environment that um, stimulated only less dualistic thinking, right? Uh, does that make any sense? Uh, I mean, I think this idea of non-duality is not black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have or you can create conditions for some sort of like a, a partial expression of it mm-hmm. uh, yeah because like i guess i i um i was i was i guess because because i guess not non-duality is, is something about how you relate to your experiences right it's it's an it's an interpretation you kind of just don't engage in so so i think i think i was i was aware of like you know you can't immediately be put into like um trench warfare and expect to become the buddha right off the bat right like that might not be the best place to do it so so i was like okay well or maybe maybe where is where are better places to do that so i was kind of um yeah just conscientious about what types of environments i was subjecting myself to Mm. so that I could use those to to remind me and also help facilitate that practice. Yeah. Um, and then it all got much harder because I went back to school. Yeah, I, I see. Um, and now here we are. And now here okay. we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a good recap of Ganam's origin story. Origin story. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, I, I, so, so I guess your, your question is like, like experiences I've had. Cause I've, I've, I've also done LSD a few times, but I don't, I don't know that I've done enough. Um, I usually take like usually half a dose. Mm-hmm. Um, the most I've taken is one, one tab. And, and that was, um, uh, I gave, gave myself like in, in two separate halves, like mm-hmm. not, not at the same time. Um, so like my, my trips have never been bad enough where I like legitimately visually hallucinated. There was, there was never any sort of, yeah, um, mine neither. Uh, well, I've had like, um, slight, uh, non-intense visual hallucinations in both times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it may also, it may not simply have to do with, uh, the dose. Right. Because I got the same dose, I think, both times that I did LSD. And in the second time, my experiences and my interpretation of those experiences were, I think I would say, I wouldn't say more intense, but different, mm-hmm. much closer to these ideas that I'm talking about. My interpretations were, and more intense, more happy. Mm-hmm. Not more intense, but more happy. Uh, and so what was the difference? The difference was that... Uh, I was a different person uh, the second time. If a man steps twice into, what's the thing? Oh, you can't into step into the same river twice? Yeah, you can't step into the same river twice. I think this time the river was the same, but the person was different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes the river is a little bit different, depending on where the LSD was. Manufacturer, <laughs> like, <laughs> whatever. But in some ways, even going into the trip this time in Mexico City, I kind of knew that it would be different. Mm-hmm and that I had much less reason to worry, for example, and that in, that just alone can shape so much what your trip is going to be like, what you're going to experience, what's going, what you're going to think about, totally. you know, just going into it, how do you feel? Mm-hmm. If you feel worried, you're not going to get the same thoughts and ideas. Yeah, so I think dosage does determine to some extent what you're going to feel but is also like your own chemistry and your own psychological makeup mm-hmm. yeah these are all interesting i was i was so I, I do remember as a child having one um i also did not enjoy thinking about death it was it was like what, what you're describing out like a, a um sense of like paralyzing feel fear from it i would get that chronically and i hated it and and, and it was it was um maybe one of the reasons i enjoyed like games as distractions right because mm-hmm. it's like they are these like immersive things that we can can escape into and sort of forget yeah. our like larger context and so so i remember as as a kid uh trying to imagine what infinity is right like what is it like because in, in in um christian theology like you you <laughs> if you win uh you go to heaven and yeah. you're stuck there forever yeah and i was like wait a minute Wait, I mean, you're like, I, I, like, I can't get out. Like, I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> like forever. <coughs> yeah. So I was like trying to imagine that. And I had this like, like, um, visual of uh, um, just these like, you know, I don't know why molten golden comets just like careening through space, and it just like didn't stop, and it just like kept going. I'm like, yeah. Oh, I was like, yeah, this sounds off. I mean, and you know. The alternative's not better because you just die, right? Like so, it's like I like that was I I couldn't yeah, reconcile yeah, yeah. that there was a, a better alternative. <laughs> yeah. Um. Both were were um 
terrifying to me. Um, well, one of those experienced experiences can't be evaluated because you're dead right and the other is evaluated to be infinity and endlessly boring <laughs> exactly <laughs> which which do you pick <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> i know it's like this is this is this is shit i think i, I mean yeah to me what's by far is most surprising is that people derive any sense of contentment or like a uh, um assuage any of their fear by the notion of heaven to me i'm like no yeah do not do whatever what <laughs> i like I don't even like just. There's no. If you no keep way. like wiping the person's memory in periodic intervals, if they feel like being born every year or something, then okay. But that's 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 just as awful, right? I mean, it's like you're you're repeatedly just. I mean, if you have no memory, what's the difference between that and being dead? You know? Yeah. It's yeah, like, no difference. So, which is why I can't. I was kind of hoping that it would come to this. <laughs> Maybe death is not to be feared as much. Maybe it is just a way to keep living forever, but without being bored. <laughs> <laughs> the original simulators was like we got to like around humans would get to around like five hundred, six hundred years old, and we just like start ripping our own eyeballs out. They're like, oh, yeah. we should probably just kill them. <laughs> like, they don't seem happy at all. <laughs> enough to realize that that um there are even more potent distractions um than games and so i think that's what that's i mean i can barely clearly pinpoint the time in my life when i decided to get quote-unquote serious about the violin um because i was like in a shower scrubbing my hair this was at a um a music camp in the czech republic and and um, my grandmother just passed away and, and my sister had, had just spent the last like six months combating um uh her cancer and so i was like just like there's like i was seeing the presence of uh mortality everywhere and i was like oh my god like i could just drop dead tomorrow what have i done with my life like what a waste so yeah. i i um in you know um a desperate fit of of grasping for the nearest thing that i thought i could control i was like okay like what you know what's the thing i can make the biggest fastest dent in in terms of like just um people recognizing me feeling accomplished getting like praise and whatever and so i was like mm, violin okay <laughs> i guess this is this is what we're doing for now because like this is what it, it appears to be that i'm best at um and and it's a small enough dominion that i could maybe you know be be competitive compared to other people in it um of course that didn't work out because eventually like mm -hmm. about a year later i was in that car accident i was like ah can't even control this shit this is yeah. this is this is, <laughs> this is wild <laughs> how um how would you rate your fear of death now as compared to like when you were a kid like you're describing um Oh, I mean, now it's, I mean, back, I mean, back then, like, you know, the, the fear was like full body physiological, right? It was like head to toe hot, you know, yeah, like, yeah. like just, just an awful physical visceral reaction. Um, I think now, um, 
it's kind of like how I don't tend to think too much about like logically absurd statements like this sentence is false yeah i'm also like well yeah there's that death thing and and, yeah. and i thought about it a lot and i don't feel Listen, like i think do we yeah that? yeah i'm like i could be thinking about that or or there's a lot of other things that i could spend my time thinking about that yeah, are yeah, yeah. just more exciting yeah. so i mean i think it's it's a nice um it's like what you were saying it's like it, it, it um even for those people who who get sucked into like the artificial games of like acquiring status money or wealth or whatever like at the end of the line we all have this thing waiting for us which resets the score to zero and and that to me um is actually a very nice thing about death because it like it, it's like you know when i do remember it i'm like i'm not scared i'm like oh wow i need to realign how i've been framing my life because because right now i got it all skewed and out of whack and, and i think in in the presence of our own mortality, like the things that are important become obviously important and everything else becomes unimportant. Mm. Um, and by and large, there is only one them. time in my life where I remember thinking about the fear of death, thinking about whether I'm feeling afraid of death and coming up with the answer, no, I'm not feeling afraid of death. And I was on ecstasy. I was on MDMA at that time. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that it's supposed to be this, uh, empathogen where it kind of rewards your ego um so i mean that's once again a clue to where the fear of death comes from mm. uh, certain subcategory of processes in your mind that are constantly creating the notion of uh, the self as separate from others mm-hmm. um on that note we're gonna end this <laughs> <laughs> the way you phrased that made it sound kind of like a suicide pact or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're done. And I need to pee. Thank you for joining our long journey today in the Room of Lives. Hope to see you soon and take care and have fun until we meet again.